a golden god! An equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> I don't know who's weirder, you or me. You just put the law in my hands, and I'm gonna break your heart with it. Nobody puts baby in a corner. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. There is no Hello and welcome back to Movies for Life. I am one of your co-hosts, Brian Kuyper. And I'm your other co-host, Michelle Aiken. And uh, today, we're going to tell you some stories. How's <laughs> oh that? Oh boy, we got some stories we could tell you. <laughs> yeah, we'll show you the life of the mind. Um, <laughs> let's just So let's just do all of the quotes that we were thinking of. <laughs> so, Michelle, are you ready for your close-up? <laughs> close-up, I'm ready for my close-up. Okay. <laughs> Great. So obviously, we're back to Movies on Movies. Or films Yay. about filmmaking, which is always fun to do. And number uh, six, number six. The, now the sixth, be, the one we've done, because this is just a fun topic. Yep. Well, and technically, yeah, and technically, New Nightmare was sort of an honorary episode in this little series, even though it wasn't True. technically one. Yeah. So today we've got. I this is a couple of my favorites. Frankly, I love both of these movies so much. You know, the first one. Which is why don't you go? Why don't we go ahead and say what the movies are? How's that? <laughs> My pick for this one is doesn't really need too much introduction. Uh, it's Sunset Boulevard from 1950. A masterpiece, like one of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> one of the movies that really made me fall in love with classic cinema is Sunset Boulevard. It's just like, yeah. oh, I get it. You know, after seeing this right. movie, it was like this was the one that really made it a lot of that click in place for me. Yeah, this is another one. I only saw it for the first time a few years ago. And kind of like Citizen Kane, it's it's one of those movies like you don't, maybe it won't live up to the hype. No, it absolutely does. It's one of the greatest movies ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, and, there's and, a reason movies are classics. And this is... <laughs> and like yeah. Citizen Kane, it is incredibly entertaining. It's not a homework yeah, movie. Yeah, oh yeah. Or something like that, yeah. And then my pick from 1991 from the Coen brothers, probably... I don't know. One of, if not my favorite Coen Brothers movie, Barton Fink. Yeah. So both of these are movies about screenwriters as our protagonist. Yep. And uh, just the Hollywood machine, as it were, uh, and how it grinds people down in various ways, I think, is an element of both of these. And this is actually a really, really good double feature. Yeah. The more I was uh, watching them and thinking about both of these, oh, this works so good together. Yeah. They play just perfectly against each other and sort of complement each other in this amazing way. So we're going to get started with Sunset Boulevard. Going chronologically, which makes sense. Uh, either one of these could have been like the uh, the standout uh, of the episode, but I can't really pick between the two of them. They're so good. Billy Wilder, I think is becoming one of my favorite directors that I didn't even realize, you know? 
yeah. was one of my favorite directors in a way. Like, my God, not only did he make some, direct some and write some of the greatest movies ever, I just, I absolutely love all of them. We got, we've already done one. We've That's done right. uh, Some Like It Hot. Some Like It Hot. Uh, but my God, like The Apartment and <sighs> Ace in the Hole is a great movie. Uh-huh. Double mm-hmm. Indemnity, another one of the greatest movies of all time. Yes. Uh, Witness for the Prosecution, which I'm eventually going to be talking about for another podcast here soon. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it's one of those directors where I hadn't really realized that he might actually be like way, way up there as among my favorites. And this is obviously another great example of amazing contribution that he's made to film. Absolutely. And this one, like I said already, this was one of those movies that just sort of made me go because sometimes there's this reputation for older movies that they're stodgy or a little bit too buttoned up or whatever. This one feels so dirty in a lot of ways. And um, there's a lot of implication. It's got of, some teeth to it. It yeah. does. And it, it is a nasty satire of Hollywood. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And aging, how Hollywood treats people who have sort of aged out, especially women. Um, though there and are it's a few, still a thing. Yeah, it is absolutely still a thing. I mean, Norma Desmond is 50 years old. 50 and she's That's gorgeous <laughs> still. I know. And uh, she has been completely tossed aside already. Uh, whereas Cecil B. DeMille, you know, <laughs> the much old enough to be her father, you know, she said he says uh, in his scene, is still working and thriving uh, in the sound yeah. era, whereas uh, she no longer was. But at the same time, you also have Eric von Stroheim sort of a meta role <laughs> as Max, uh, who was also a director uh, from the Cecil B. DeMille era, you know, that they talk about. And that was all true. He was a big director in the silent era. Uh, he directed, her name just flew out of my head. I'm sorry. The person who plays Norma Desmond. Gloria Swanson. Yeah. she. Uh, he directed Gloria Swanson in Queen Kelly, which is the movie that they watch, the silent film that they watch in the uh, course of the film, uh, that one oh, scene I in, in the that. house. Yeah, they're watching that movie that uh, Stroheim actually directed her in. Uh, so it's just okay. sort of this wonderful, I don't know if this is the first meta movie, <laughs> but it's... I didn't realize it was that meta. Yeah, I didn't know that it's about it. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's way ahead of the curve on that stuff. So it's pretty great, um, all the kinds of things. You know, just even at the beginning, you go, you would have turned out Gone with the Wind. And, you know, the producer says, no, that was me. You know, (laughs) so (laughs) discussing real movies, real stars, real humans, Mm -hmm. uh, a director shows up in the movie plays who himself. Is, plays himself and the he's actors actually play the mm-hmm. actors that play themselves uh, yeah that scene. scene was actually saw, shot on the set of samson and delilah which he was actually shooting at that time it's just terrific well, and the, the the bridge scene where they don't uh yes. they don't name anybody <laughs> but you got <laughs> but Buster like Keaton. All, all of his all of her famous silent film uh-huh. stars they don't name anybody and i didn't really H. know who B. they were Warner. i didn't reckon yeah yeah it's H.B. Really cool. Warner and who we have actually talked about before uh, in It's a Wonderful Life episode. Oh, really? Yes. Buster Keaton. Anna, 
Anna Q. Nelson, uh, who is I'm not familiar with. Uh, I'm going to jump there. Let's see. She was in An American in Paris. Adam's Rib, Seven Brides. for. She was actually still working quite a bit during this time, to be honest, because these movies that they're talking about here are not the silent era movies that are at the top of her list here. So she apparently had quite a lasting film career. But anyway, it's just a... This whole movie is just so fascinating. I mean, and even the way it starts. I mean, my gosh, the whole movie is narrated by a dead man. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, too. I was that I love the the structure of this because I remember the first time that I watched it. And, you know, it's bookended with Uh scenes of um, William Holden, main character, plays Joe Gillis, dead in the pool. Right. (laughs) But I remember the first time I watched it um, after that opening scene completely forgot about that until the end and i was just kind of fascinated that that's that was effective you know and that it actually worked but that's how because you get so sucked into the story between him and norma and then like what norma Uh uh, i mean she's so distracting and (laughs) like in a good way with the her gloria swanson's acting style is just it's brilliant it's so brilliant for the character and also for like what it's she's trying to say about the character Uh uh-huh but yeah, the structure is very cool, and the the narration by him um, is very interesting. <laughs> and because I it's love very how film it, noir, very dry kind yeah, of. Yeah, it's very dry, but it's also kind of funny the way uh-huh. that what he's what he's saying in the voiceover very much contradicts like what he's doing in the movie. Oh yeah, or what he says, to Norma, <laughs> which I found so it's like so cruel sometimes, but also very funny, and it kind of makes you. Uh, I don't know. Do we like him? Do we like Joe? Joe is sure. kind of a sleazy guy. He's so sleazy. He's taking advantage of this situation entirely. He has his moments, uh-huh. I would say, but he also don't really like him a whole lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, just before he hits his moment of real redemption, he gets shot in the back and falls in the pool. Right. You know? <laughs> um, one of the things that... Okay, so the first time I saw this movie, I remember my mom and I were watching it. And we got about halfway through and we had to stop for some reason. And my dad said, oh, yeah, when you get back, you'll find, yeah, you'll just see how he gets shot and ends up in the pool. Like, dad, why are you spoiling it for us? (laughs) He's dead in the beginning of the movie. And it was like, Uh oh, I mean, but I remember us being so mad about it. And it was just like, oh, wait a minute. He's right. You know, he didn't spoil it because we... We just didn't recognize William Holden, I don't think, either. I wasn't that familiar with his work before seeing this. I might have seen Bridge on the River Kwai before this, but I don't think I'd seen anything else. Well, also, it's kind of hard to recognize his his dead face (laughs) in the pool. He looks a lot different in the pool. Um, He does. And that shot of him floating is so surreal. I don't know if that was done with a mirror or what, because it's just... Mm -hmm. It it's is. just a wild shot because he's like clear, but the cops behind him are all wavy, you know, like seeing through water and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, that's sort of unusual shooting, unusual camera work for Billy Wilder. He didn't do a lot of that kind of, you know, deep focus sorts of stuff. You know, he he his camera look is more like something like the apartment where it's just sort of documenting what you see i mean it's impeccably placed you know the camera's perfectly placed it's it's set up in a great composition but not necessarily like you know 
Max's hands in the foreground, foreground playing the organ with you know him way in the background kind of shots. That right. that that those are unusual to this kind of mo- to this movie. So um, it's interesting to see Billy Wilder play with his style, his own style, a little bit, you know, and try some different kinds of things and have it work so impeccably because the guy was brilliant even just like some of the compositions are are really interesting one of my favorite shots is when um joe first sees norma through the the blinds that look i don't know you can just see through the blinds that she's wearing the sunglasses make her look really because like the the old time sunglasses are kind of scary looking Uh (laughs) like from that from the 50s i don't know what it is about them and this the the blinds look a little weird too and it makes her look like like a ghost or like you even kind of called this a monster movie in a way Mm -hmm. because it's a little it's got a little bit of a gothic element to it yeah with her uh, the mansion that she lives in that's all decrepit and run down and not taken care of and pictures of herself everywhere yeah he talks about there being yeah he talks about there being eight master bedrooms but we only Mm -hmm. see like a few rooms in this Mm -hmm. house Mm -hmm. that that she actually lives in yeah yeah, we see her uh, bedroom we see his bedroom the husband's bedroom i love that yeah and and (laughs) the, the husband's plural bedroom right yeah and the pictures of her everywhere yeah that's a really nice touch one of my actually one of my favorite shots is her um laying on the couch with all the the pictures yes. around her, and the way that they're all kind of turned so that she can always see him so she yeah. can always see herself you know yeah. there's a lot of great like um details in the background of this movie it's like that really go along with her character how could she breathe in that house so crowded with Norma Desmond's? So many great quotes from this movie too. I love it. <laughs> yeah, and you know that's that's the thing with Billy Wilder. He's he was a great writer, and he always had great writing partners. Yeah, you know, obviously the most famous being him and IAL Diamond. They did Some Like It Hot and Seven Year Itch and The Apartment, and you know those are those are the really famous collaborations right and then then of course him him and uh raymond chandler on uh double indemnity and then here mm-hmm. uh with charles brackett is just kind of this great collaboration as well so you know the dialogue is going to be sharp as a tack i mean that's the thing with him it's there's always a there's always a little bit of an edge in his voice you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> and i love that about him so getting into it just um Joe Gillis, uh, as William Holden, as we said, is this uh, the writer in Hollywood. I love the discussion at the beginning about bases loaded. <laughs> it's one of my favorite scenes, trying, actually. When he's trying to pitch that, <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, that just sounds absolutely awful. And yeah. props to um, Miss uh, <laughs> Betty Schaefer for calling him out on what, what a crappy Betty script is that is. Betty is so funny. I love Betty. Okay. <laughs> By played by Nancy Olson, but she is so great in this, and she's kind of overshadowed by everyone else, you know, because she's she's normal. I mean, she's she's an actual right. like she's just a human being. Where you know, William uh, Joe Gillis is kind of kind of a sleaze ball. Norma is she thinks she's on screen all the time, you know, yeah. and then Max is. I mean, is Max is living in the past, yeah, obsessed with this other person, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And Betty is just is the only one in the movie who has like a good head on her shoulders and a yeah. good she has a good outlook on the business. Yeah. That's why I was saying it's like, a balanced look she, too. Yeah. That's why I was saying she's got my favorite quote in the whole movie. In that um scene where they're walking on the back lot and she yeah. tells a story about her nose. My favorite quote from the whole movie is um What's wrong with being on the other side of the cameras? It's really more fun. Yeah. Like she just has a good outlook on it. Like she like, yeah. okay, I tried it and it wasn't for me. I wasn't right for it, but I'm <laughs> doing this now and I'm fine where I am and I don't need right. any loftier ambitions than that. And she yeah. is just kind of fine in her own little place and mm-hmm. the way that she's moving up and there where everybody else in the movie just has to be the the best and the highest at everything, you know. Right. Right. You know, and she's like, <laughs> um, they liked my nose, but not my acting. <laughs> this is a funny line too. <laughs> well, even, but she's, she's sharp at the, at the beginning too. Cause I mean, she's, oh, yeah. and I love that scene where it says, you know, I've heard about you. I've heard you had some talent. And he said, that was last year. This year I'm trying <laughs> to make a living. And yeah, uh, which I think ties in beautifully to like Barton Fink sure. and especially mm-hmm. the character of W.P. Mayhew played by John Mahoney, you know, just making a living, trying all this, <laughs> this stuff is kind of sucking out their souls, you know, right? Uh, <laughs> but. And, you know, he, in the beginning of the movie, he's going to get his car repossessed. He's at mm-hmm. that point where he hasn't sold anything and no one's interested in his work. No one's going to give him the money. Yeah. He's like begging his friends. He's like, I need $300. And, you know, it's pretty random that he ends up at that house. I mean, it's sort of, it's almost like the fates. He's literally like so. running, running from the repo man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he has a blowout right in front of Norma's house. Is, is yeah. how it goes, you know. But at the same time, you know, it's it's the one thing that feels, as far as the plot goes, just kind of contrived, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, things like that do happen. Those, sure. those weird coincidences happen and you, you run into people you don't expect to run into, right? And that person needs something that the other person mm-hmm. has and... They're both, would you say that they're both kind of taking advantage of each other? Oh, hell yeah. Um, but she wants someone to love her. I mean, that's yeah. that's part of what it comes down to with her, uh, I think. But the first meeting, you know, is like, when you go upstairs, <laughs> and, you know, I think, doesn't Max think he's the person bringing the coffin? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he goes upstairs. And he doesn't have it with him. So He doesn't have it with him. <laughs> why Why would he think that he's the, I know. the, the burial guy or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> then uh, they're having a funeral for this monkey. Or, or I'm sorry, a chimpanzee. Chimp. A chimpanzee. I call him Bubbles, even though... <laughs> <laughs> I really, I was waiting for her to give his name. Yeah. Like, what was the, what was, the, why do I even say monkey too? Yeah. Chimp. <laughs> what was the chimp's name? Uh, yeah. We'll call him Bubbles. We'll call him Bubbles. So, um, because honestly. Bubbles was apparently her friend that mm-hmm. passed away. Yeah. And, which is just wild. And then, and that's such a, it's kind of a creepy image, just that dead chimpanzee. Yes. It's one of the things things in this movie that sort of skates it just slightly to that horror feel you know just a little bit of that horror adjacent feeling that this movie has uh from time to time you know especially look real. with norma yeah it doesn't it doesn't it actually and i actually want because what's funny about seeing a dead body i think of any form is it looks like a doll it's very weird mm. you know i i haven't seen a lot i i remember you know, a funeral, open casket funeral, and you look at the person, it's like, it doesn't look like a 
It looks like yeah. a doll. It's very weird. But this doesn't even look like a chimp. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. The way the eyes are sort of bulgy, yes. you know, with the eyes closed and everything. It's very, whew, it's wild. It's wild. But, of course, hey, I know you. You're Norma Desmond. You used to be big. And then she immediately picks up, <laughs> I am big. It's the pictures that got small. And it's that line <laughs> delivery. It's the yeah. way she holds her face and the way she never blinks and the way she's always kind of holding her head <laughs> at an angle. So you get her exact, you know, the the exact yeah. image that you want her to. She wants you to see of her. She's always acting. She's always. She's always on camera. Always yeah. on camera. That was, yeah, that was one of the things I texted to you that one of my notes for this was blink. Woman, just blink, please. Yeah, <laughs> this I know. Especially got me. I, I, I think I it was one of those things where I hadn't realized that she was probably doing that throughout the whole movie until like one of the last scenes where the scene where she and Joe are talking, and I just I was watching her and I was like, she's really not blinking at all. Yeah. And that's I think that was such a yeah good. It's very creepy thing. It looks it looks wrong. It makes her like all of her facial expressions and the way that she delivers her lines are just. Yeah, it's very not real, but you can kind of yeah. get where she got that from, from being a silent film star, you know, yeah. like she says, it's all about the face yeah, or whatever, and, but that's and, not, not how yeah, people and, do it anymore. And, and you're like kind of no. freaking us out, but it's a good thing, a good choice for that character because oh, yeah, like you said, that's what, that's what, um, <laughs> yeah, that's what the actors, the good actors do, like never blink, you know, on camera. It's kind of right. a thing. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's funny when you watch movies you'll notice that certain actors i mean they don't hold their eyes wide open but they just they keep them open when you watch for it you can see that on on in most movies frankly where an actor just won't blink very often unless it's for a a laugh you know like buster keaton would blink it's funny you know buster keaton's obviously in this movie and this is a slight tangent i promise not to go off too long but buster keaton is so funny because He's she's talking about faces. It's all about the face and the exaggeration of the face. Buster Keaton was exact opposite of that. You know, the old stone face where he didn't show any expression and he would just blink a few times and it'd be hilarious. You know, so (laughs) it's just sort of these interesting kinds of ideas of what silent film acting is. You know, because mm-hmm. even when she's performing for him, she does the whole Charlie Chaplin thing. Yeah. And it's a another just totally different style of silent film acting. You know, so she's doing sort of this, the image of what we think silent film acting is. But then she, the movie also demonstrates that there were these other kinds of things going on too. So True. I just had never thought of that until this second. But, you know, hey, whatever. <laughs> so she talks him into helping him helping her with her script. Yeah. When she finds out that he's a, a screenwriter, she thinks that maybe she's got some use for him off t- after all. And maybe she's also kind of thinking at this time to have somebody, maybe have somebody to replace the chimp, you know, have another yeah. companion mm-hmm. that she can dote on. I think she, maybe she's already thinking of that to begin with, but yes, yeah, she's writing this script that uh, he's going to doctor, I guess. Salome. Salome. Or does she call Who's it gonna Salome? He's going to play Salome. Like, of course. Salome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am. <laughs> Who else? Of course she's going to play Salome. <laughs> yeah. The teenage girl. So <laughs> Salome, right? Uh, so anyway, it's... It's funny. It's it's actually it, there's a streak of dark humor through this too. Yes. There's a lot that's really really funny in this movie. Another thing that, you know, connects it with Barton Fink. 
I think, is the actual, just the absolute pitch black uh, nature of the humor in these movies. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I find really creepy is when all of Joe's stuff is delivered to the apartment above. Yeah. It's just like, you know, she asked me to go get it and Max brings it all over. Everything from his apartment <laughs> is moved in, yeah. is moved into the house. And it's like, um, that is creepy. That kind of gives you, that's like the first hint of like mm-hmm. the obsession that's going on in this house for different things, I would yeah. say. Because he mentioned it like really briefly, like in passing, like where he lived. So like the apartments, the name of the apartments where he lived. Right. So you know that like she picked up on that and like went there and somehow found out which one it was and somehow got in and somehow, or Max did all this stuff to, to get all of his stuff like in one night. Yeah. That is very creepy yes there's another great line here where he's working on the script and he cuts a scene out that she wants in it because yes. she's in the scene right well sure the audience wants to see me you know she says uh-huh. something like that and he says i didn't fight with her you don't yell at a sleepwalker they might fall down the stairs and break their neck <laughs> it's pretty funny um she hates the word comeback it's not a comeback it's a return it's a return uh <laughs> You just want to imitate her throughout the movie, but the I thing is, it's it's a it's one of those performances that is easy to parody, but to create it in the first place is pretty astounding. And I don't think her performance is funny. No, even though it's like, yeah, it's fun to imitate and kind of make fun of. I don't find it that to be funny within the context it's of the movie. Sad. It's so sad. Really. Yes. I mean, everyone's kind of a tragic character in this movie, right? <laughs> Um, uh-huh. it, there's sort of a Shakespearean tragic feeling to how all of this plays out. Um, yeah. But okay, when they're sitting in the living room watching the movie, because why go out to the movies when you can just... And uh, that's funny. That's a cool it, setup. <laughs> yeah, I know. But isn't that funny in today's in today's culture where we have home video and we do watch so many movies at home, people are more likely to watch movies at home than they are to go to the theater You know, especially in the last couple of years, it's just sort of interesting. I don't know if it plays the same as it did in 1950, but his line is something like, because why go to the movies? This is so, and actually be around people, you know, (laughs) It, it has, it sort of says something about where we've come, I think, as a society, but yeah, it's more supposed to be a comment on, on her. Yeah. Her isolation. Yeah. Yeah. Because what um, he's, I think he's uh, Joe as much as I kind of don't like him because he's concocting a plan, as he says, like, um, as soon as he's, he hears what she proposes to him and all of the stuff in the voiceover is him making fun of her in a way or at least criticizing or critiquing like every little thing that she does he even makes fun of her childish scrawl you know in the the written pages of her script um but that's what he's saying in his head or he's dead but he's not really saying whatever right (laughs) but 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 you don't think about that at this point i'm not thinking about that at this point i have i have totally forgotten about that at this point yeah 
But what he's saying in real life to her is, you know, very much placating her. Oh, yeah. But he's still kind of got a lock on what's happened to her. You know, like, I think he he understands in a way because... He talks about, you know, her being afraid of the outside world, which she probably is. And I'm sure there's probably like an element of agoraphobia or something to what she's going through right now. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, he has his he has his moments (laughs) where I think he he understands her, I think, better than even Max does. I think Max is a little bit too much in his own head and his obsession with her and her and his protection of her. He's an enabler. Yeah, he is. Yeah. And Joe kind of is too, but oh yeah, <laughs> he's also he's also not afraid to to tell her when she needs to hear it, like, especially at the end. I think you know what's mm-hmm. pretty much what the whole movie is about. To me, is kind of um, what he says in one of their last scenes together is there. There's nothing tragic about being fifty, not unless you try to be twenty five. Right, that's, which is a great that's, line. Yeah, I and you know, as as a guy who's I'm 44 now, the midlife crisis is real. You you kind of sure. like, hey, I want to be 20, but that was a couple years ago. I'm good now. Um, but it was that sort of thing, you know. It, it's just like uh, you wish, it, but you get you it. Wish I he get had it. Told her that at the beginning. Yeah, you yeah. Wish he, had, he had told her that at the beginning of the movie because that's that's her biggest thing is like not not just about her age, but just about living in the past and you know recapturing something that's not completely lost but that has just changed and being right. willing to change with it mm-hmm. if you can maybe you'll have a chance but she can't do that yeah well another thing about this this is another thing in this movie theater scene where they're watching like i said they're watching queen kelly the movie that she made with eric von stroheim when she was like 18 I want to say 18, 19 years old. She reaches around and like grabs his arm and her hand is just like this claw. It it has this sort of Dracula feeling to it. Like she's a, she's a vampire kind of character and it's really, it's really effective. And the way the light is going, the projector light and the smoke going up in the light, in the beam of the light is so cool. And then the fact that the movies are completely silent because they don't even have music attached to them because Max is running the projector, which saves them from having him accompany them on the organ, (laughs) which (laughs) which I think is really... Joe is happy about. (laughs) It was like, this is is the whole thing about, uh, we we didn't need talk, we had faces. She's kind of right about one thing, I'll say. When she says, like, people don't have faces like that anymore. They really don't. Like, you look at the faces of the silent film stars. Oh. There's something, there's something about them. She so says beautiful. one, perhaps one Garbo, but then one she brings yes. up was a silent <laughs> film star. You know, Greta Garbo, of course, was, was one of the great silent film stars. So who happened to be one of the only ones who crossed yeah, over into the, yeah. Sure. You know, I love the bridge game. I think it's so funny and it's so simple because I mean, all you have is, you know, Buster Keaton's one line fold. I think he, I find that guy funny. <laughs> That guy gets funny no matter what. I, I just with one line or no but, lines. Yeah, I have never Keaton. seen any of his yet. Oh, gosh. I haven't gotten into the silent movies yet. I know, I know. And the thing I just talked about on Sherlock and I talked about uh, the general with Lindsay and watching that movie again. 
it's just like, oh my gosh, this guy was such a genius. And that's not even my favorite movie of his. And then, you know, H.P. Warner, who was typecast because he played Jesus in, in a Cecil B. DeMille movie, you know, and never got to play sort of the jerks. And then he was in uh, It's a Wonderful Life as Mr. Gower, you know, and got to hit a kid. Oh. Uh, yeah. So. Um, okay. Yeah. And he just <laughs> nice. looks so different uh, in this because he's wearing, the, they're all dressed up so much. They're wearing their nicest right. clothes and everything for this intimate bridge game it's so strange and calling them the waxworks the waxworks i thought that's perfect yeah <laughs> it's great it's kind of perfect that yeah he just says that a bunch of her old you know friends from silent movies came but like i love that they don't actually say any of their names mm. they just kind of let the audience recognize them if they can I if think. they can that's yeah. really that's a really cool way to do it yeah yeah and it becomes just more effective the farther away we get from silent film. Because I had to look up. I was like, I'm sure those were p- some people, you know. I had to look up exactly who. I was like, who was at the bridge game in Sunset Boulevard? Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's such a short scene. I mean, it's it's just a, f- a minute or so. And it's just, it's so memorable to me, that little scene. And again, that's, that's that meta nature where you have uh, people playing themselves. So cleverly done. And these were, you know, the biggest stars that there were and had just been, again, sort of forgotten. I Um, haven't forgotten them. I just, I never knew who they were in the first place. Exactly. And I haven't gotten into that yet, but. And I think that was probably true of a lot of people seeing this movie, even in 1950. You know, they weren't remembering necessarily. I mean, it's like, oh, I remember seeing those movies as a kid, maybe if they're old enough. But I mean, 1950. That's 20 years removed from the last silent films. That's not even that long. I know. It doesn't seem like <laughs> to it. To forget those people, yeah. Yeah. But I think it shows that Hollywood has always been a fickle business. And the transition to sound, I mean, as we already talked about in Singing in the Rain, was brutal for a lot of actors. I mean, if that's how Norma would have acted in yeah. talking pictures, I, I, I mean, to be honest, I don't know that she would have been successful, you know, if she couldn't right. change to a more naturalistic style. Well, you got to admit, a lot of right? 1930s <laughs> acting is still silent film acting, just with vocals. <laughs> now, the difference that where that changed was like James Cagney. James Cagney was a stage guy. He came on and did film. He, he kept talking fast. He didn't slow down and uh, do all that kinds of mugging for the camera. You know, that was that was something really different. So he sort of stood out because he was so more, much more naturalistic. But a lot of, you know, the 30s film stars. I mean, like my mom and I have watched Gone with the Wind a couple of times and we always laugh because Vivian Lee is just so damn over the top in that movie. Um, I kind of love her. I know. Me too. No, me too. I, okay. <laughs> But it's might be because of... I'm all attracted to her, but <laughs> she's also amazing. Oh, she's gorgeous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. But you know what I mean, though? It's a different style of mm-hmm. acting. Not that people were entirely naturalistic, I would say, even nah. into the 50s. That nah. probably, I don't mm-hmm. think, really cropped up until the 60s. Yeah, when you had the method coming in and yeah. you know, Montgomery Cliff, Marlon Brando, that sort the of The 50s school. are still kind of doing that... Um, that it's flat accent, reality. I guess, that, that they were taught, you know, mm-hmm. but still kind of getting 
something still still feels like when I watch, uh, not that I'm like not bagging on any of these movies. These movies are great, but it still kind of felt like stage acting a little bit in a lot of those movies. I mean, you have exceptions to that. I mean, like, for example, I think... You know, From what I've of, seen is what I'm saying, yeah. Right, I right. Have, I might have yeah. missed on some good stuff. <laughs> but, but I mean, you all had these actors were characters. Mm-hmm. Like, Jimmy Stewart always talked like this. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, that sort of thing. And you had Cary Grant doing Cary Grant. I love Who was Cary Grant, da- yeah. da- very different than, you know, Archie Leach, you know, who he really was, you know. And John Wayne <laughs> was always John Wayne, you know. And, and, and you so you had actors in movies playing a character that was playing a character you know what i mean <laughs> so so <laughs> sure. their their movie star persona was playing a character and i i think that is um we don't have that as much we don't have that now. anymore no because people want to be actors they don't want to be movie stars anymore <laughs> nothing wrong with that <laughs> no there's nothing wrong with that um, so i think um the big like not big but a turning point or a realization at least in the the relationship between joe and norma is when they uh they take out the big old jalopy for a ride i love yes. that car and the way that it's all uh decked out in leopard print upholstery is like awesome <laughs> <laughs> i love that which which i think it's like is dipped out a leopard skin probably made from real leopards <laughs> Um, which is God, I which hope is, not. I love cats. No, I, I know, I know, but but I think that's the implication because she's that rich, you know, when I she know. buys this yeah. car. But she makes the comment while they're right. They just go out for rides, which you know, thank God they get out every once in a right. while. Get a little sun from that mansion. Get some sun. Yeah. yeah, she makes a comment on his clothes and uh-huh. um, wants to take him clothes shopping, and it's a. Kind of a great little moment when um, he kind of realizes, I think, what's what's going on, really, with yeah. the, the relationship between the two of them. Where um, he's starting, he's like, "I'm, I'm, I'm kept boy, aren't I?" Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much is the it's realization like, that he comes I to, especially have a sugar mama. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. when he's talking to, he, you know, she wants to do all this and you know get him this kind of suit, and one with tails and whatever, and he's just like, "No, Norma, I don't want to do that." And what he uh, t- is talking to the guy at the the clothes shop wherever they're at the tailor um, yeah the tailor yeah you know get him get him a coat and camel skin but i also have this vacuna that's a little which is apparently i had to look that up that is a a relative of the llama so that's kind of what (laughs) what a vacuna a vacuna is kind of the the way that that guy just kind of like whispers over and like as long as the lady's paying for it why don't i get get the vacuna yeah i know that (laughs) and you can just see the look on his face he's not happy <laughs> oh no no that that's a dark moment i mean that's what it is that's that's one of those real moments with teeth i think and then max puts him into the husband's bedroom yes <laughs> and this is also where you see that there are no locks on the door there are like no doorknobs on any of the doors <laughs> because she tried to kill herself yeah before and so the really dark part of the yeah, story yeah that is that's such an interesting detail sort of the the there are no locks on any of the doors in the house and that's where we also find out that max, max has been writes all the fan writes letters, the fan letters. She yeah gets. and she's they're signing her autograph you know on all of these pictures of herself and sending them to max essentially it's so sad i mean he's he's it's, yeah the, he's all enabling of that is so her. tragic yeah. yeah he feels like he's protect okay okay let's talk about max and narma yeah <laughs> Let's do okay, that. So that's that's just the first of 
the revelations mm-hmm. that that comes in about their relationship, which he kind of gives that so as if it's um, so matter of factly, like oh, yeah, there's no locks on any of the doors because you know, Madame has attempted suicide in the past, and but and like he Joe is a little bit shocked at that, I think. Yeah. Um, but Max is just very, I don't know what he, that's why I, yeah, I'm not really sure about, I want to talk about their relationship the most, I think, because that's the one that fascinates me the most in I this movie. I think so too. Well, I mean, are we going to, are we going to give away some of the later stuff too? Yeah, uh, go ahead. Let's, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we find out that not only has he been enabling her by writing the fan letters and kind of keeping her in her... Uh, illusion you know yeah that's a good word the kind of life that she's still living you know in hollywood um but that he was also her first husband (laughs) her first husband and her first director and her first director i actually directed her you know in a lot of her earlier movies and which is of course reality which is reality yeah because eric von stroheim actually did direct her (laughs) okay so what do you think happened there what do you think is going on because i think it's one of those things to me he just seems like the one that he really does care about her but he's not really taking care of her the way that she needs i think it was empathy i think he sort of like empathy gone wrong though it's it's so extreme when he was when he must have seen her despondent because she wasn't getting jobs. And so he might have even, you know, been with her or like during one of yeah. her suicide attempts or something like that, you know? Yeah. And and had he gave up his own career because he wanted her because it sounds like you get the impression from what he says that he could have been DeMille. You know, he could have gone mm-hmm. on and worked yeah. in the sound era and he would have been just fine. Because he's like, there's, you know, three big names, you know, yeah, directors was, from the silent era. And he was one yeah, of them. And he was one of them. So, I mean, DeMille kept going. Um, Griffith did not. Him, his first sound movies kind of blow. Uh, his silent films kind of blow. But um, that's another story. <laughs> kind of racist. Anyway, um, but... <laughs> <laughs> they don't age well let's put it that way um okay. <laughs> but but i think he has this devotion to her because i mean he was yeah. married to her obviously it was but you know maybe he saw the fans start leaving and so he decided to write one fan letter to make to brighten her day one day and it worked and so he just kept doing it and doing it and wrote it, writing more and more and before he knew it, he was her butler and her driver and doing right. all of this for her out of a misplaced version of love, you know, a fake version love of Love and yeah. devotion. Yeah. Obsession. To the extreme. Yeah. yeah. To the point of obsession, I think. Because, I mean, I wonder if he's convinced that they'll get back together or... I don't think that that's what he wants, though. Yeah. It's all about her to me that's true and like there's nothing about him like i don't want to say that like he's demeaned himself by becoming a butler but to no take on a, a, that's a not servant the... role to another person mm-hmm. it's like it's all about her and is what about him what he's... about anything that he wants i mean they have a i think she treats him well mm-hmm. maybe there's <laughs> anyway, a like sense she... that in a way he is sort of what joe is destined to become if he continues 
if he gets on, caught in her web. Yeah, yeah, if he sort of continues to stick with this feeding into her fantasy. I just really like in in some scenes where you can really see that on his face. Like th- I think the scene where he does reveal that he was her husband and a director, which you know obviously Joe had no idea about. <laughs> right. I can. I've really just kind of felt like that. Um, what did I write? I wrote. Uh, he really displays his dogged determination to protect her and her feelings, most importantly, at all costs. Right. But not actually do her any good is the problem. Is ma- right. It's kind of the main problem. And the scene, oh, especially in the scene, um, the the New Year's party. Oh, gosh, the New Year's party. We got to talk about the New Year's party. It's, <laughs> first of all, it's so sad. But yeah. yeah, we'll talk about that. But just in terms of Max, um, mm-hmm. that shot of him watching norma and joe dance yes he looks that's when that's kind of like a a moment of realization almost for him too because the look on his face to me is just that he's so sad watching that because maybe because he's he's seen like what she's become that she's put on this lavish party like just for the two of them you know or maybe he's a little bit jealous of joe i don't know really what's going on but i really kind of see it as i think he's kind of seeing like what he's helped her become the fantasy that he's Mm. you know helped her like stay in yeah and he's uh, yeah that 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 kind of broke my heart this time (laughs) watching that yeah and that new year's party is so weird well okay still still with max though yeah (laughs) i think it's a it's almost kind of a he's kind of definitely a tragic figure to me too especially and the scene at the end the famous like Ending where he gets scene behind the cameras she, and where he starts directing again mm-hmm. it's kind of <laughs> that made that really made me sad because because uh, maybe he's living in the same kind of fantasy too yeah anyway or like that's kind of where he's headed because when the the cameras are the cameras it's like news cameras there they're news cameras the yeah. murder that's but, happened <laughs> but what's funny about that to me is when max goes and he stands next to the camera people the lighting people they listen to him still. Yeah. There's no, I mean, it's like he actually is still a director, uh, even if it's in this fantasy. Because he knows it's fantasy, though. Whereas yeah. Norma has no idea at that point. Norma, she- ha- I, I think I think Norma has lost it entirely um, by that, that point. She is completely in her fantasy world. At the end of the movie, I believe. I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> okay, I, I, I. We need to discuss that one too. <laughs> okay, okay. I, but I, where I think she, yeah, is still in the fantasy is at the New Year's party, um, mm-hmm. which Joe uh, assumes is going to be like more of her old Hollywood friends coming over for this, and you know, she's put him in one of those. I don't know why he's so averse to wearing like a really cool tux but i guess it's because that's not what the cool young kids are wearing anymore <laughs> the tux it's, with the, the tails a, and everything i a, think it looks awesome it's a penguin suit yeah <laughs> it's awesome though he looks good in it <laughs> well the thing is i think it's also um as a writer he's probably feeling like a little bit he's supposed to be a little bit of a bohemian maybe yeah. you know <laughs> a little bit uh sure. he, he likes his frumpy suits and he likes his own space and his own apartment that is you know a little bit run down he likes his little bungalow office where he can write, you know, uh, at the studio. He, he likes that stuff. And you know, that, that when he goes to his own party, that's kind of what he looks for. You know, it's like, and they're singing that song when they first 
show the party it's crammed you know there yeah. there's no not hardly space to to breathe in the room and they're singing the song buttons and bows where he says at the end it's like all we can we all get paid in buttons and bows you know or something like that we only get paid in buttons and bows i think is the line at the end and it's like it's uh-huh. it's sort of like that yeah lively lively but penniless kind of you know filled with this joy and zest for life, but, you know, just barely scratching by, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. is, is kind of, I think it's romanticized, obviously, uh, as, as much as the stardom life, but that's kind of what I see in that scene. Yeah. Whereas with Norma's party, she's hired a band. She's had the floors waxed. They have a whole like spread of food mm-hmm. or something out for and it's just two the two of them. Of them. Yeah. And what's so weird about, you know, the orchestra, that little band just plays and plays the and whole time. Plays. There's yeah, I mean it, I would have I would have given up like a long time ago <laughs> cuz he talks and like one of the voiceovers like they've been there for like hours at one point like yeah. I'm like the band is still there. <laughs> yeah. I mean that <laughs> when they have, like dipped whole... out when they realized it was just the two of them I would have during the whole scene and even when things get uncomfortable like mm-hmm. you know the whole you don't want me to love you and all all that stuff that she's saying where she's laying on the couch and all that and then even after he leaves and comes back they're still playing they're, they're still, still playing and that's wild to me and he and then you know he calls max while he's at the party and says you know i'm gonna move out and he says you gonna move in with Artie green yeah and and you know get his life back and says, well, Norma attempted suicide. So he goes back and there's the band still playing. And he's warned by Max, don't run up the stairs. The musicians mustn't know what happened. I mean, it's that's wild <laughs> stuff. That's dark stuff going on. I mean, it's like the band playing while the Titanic is sinking. That's kind and, of what I was thinking, too. Yeah. It's, oh, jeez. So I have a question. What, why... Why does he stay? Is it because she committed tried to commit suicide? I think so. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. Maybe the same reason Maybe why Max, same reason de- Max decided to stay in the first place. And and they slept together after that scene. Don't you think they slept together after that scene? Norma and Joe? Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't get that. Cuz it, it like they're they're like embracing and he kisses her and then it fades to black. So I assume I didn't even think of that. No, <laughs> I assume they were bumping uglies after that. So that's just that's huh. just me. Maybe. But yeah, I'm I, I I assume that there's that bond too. That now now they're lovers here. Like what? But is it's a almost like it's lay? almost like pity sex. Yeah. I was say it's a pity lay. For totally. <laughs> on 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 Joe's part, he's like, it's like, well, yeah. this is what she wants. She wants to be loved. So and uh, you know, he's. I think the reason he stays is because he has a human heart. You know, and he doesn't want someone he knows to kill themselves, right? You know. Yeah, but I also have a question about that too, which I I feel kind of bad for even thinking because I do think that Norma is very very depressed and yeah. just going through a lot, but that also feels very manipulative. It's performative. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. Yeah, she did it because. She did it, it to bring keep him Joe there. Back. Yeah. That's so I I don't like that. It's I know. so manipulative it's and so it's so dark. So wrong. It's so dark. <laughs> I mean, but I think that is I I agree with you though. I think that's what's happening. When really the person that he should be with, even though he's a little bit of a homewrecker because Betty and, and Artie are together, he really should be with Betty. He's amazing. 
who keeps trying. They, I love how they keep he keeps running into her. Like it's a fate thing again. It is. If fate brought him to Norma, but fate also makes him keep running into Betty. And the way that um, they kind of they get together and they start writing their own little little script together. I love those scenes between the two yeah, of them. Yeah, they're wonderful. And the, that back they're lot so nice. scene and is one so of the sp- best. Yes. And that was and th- honestly in my past viewings of this, I think I've kind of brushed off those scenes a little bit because they're not oh, showy. Some of the best. Yeah. They're not, yeah, they're not showy. They're just humans interacting like normal humans, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and it's, it doesn't have the fireworks of the Norma scenes necessarily, or the, or the, or the scene where on the set of DeMille's movie or any of that, but they're so good. I love that scene on the back lot where they go for the walk. I do too. Uh, and, you know, and she talks about this is the, uh, this is the, these are the streets I grew up on and they're the fake streets because her, her mother works in wardrobe and her, and yeah, her grandmother, her grandmother worked, did, was a stunt, <laughs> was a stunt well, yeah, player. It was a stunt or woman. Something. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, all that is so cool. Like her mom is, yeah, her mom is still working in movies to this day. And yeah. she kind of, she grew up in the town and she's got all this background with it. Kind of like Norma does in a way, but she's the one that came out of it. Or she didn't let Hollywood get to her the way Norma right, did. Right, right. She doesn't let the gears grind her. Yeah. Yeah, especially in the story that she tells about how, like, oh, my whole family was in movies. So everybody thought that I was going to be a big movie star. So I took all these lessons and everything and uh, learned how to act. But they didn't like her nose. I got my nose fixed. I like the little the little movement she makes there. It's like, it goes slightly to the left. Yeah. <laughs> That's just, I don't know. That's just a great little it, it's, uh, shot of her. And it's so different from the way Norma does it, you know? Yeah. Because she just, she's just like, hey, you know, I'm talking about my nose, so I'm going to give you a little profile. Whereas Norma, <laughs> it's like she turns dramatically to the <laughs> side, you know, she's showing you, literally showing you her profile, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Oh, it's, it's wild stuff. Yeah. But Betty is telling this story that should be like... Maybe in some other movie or some other story, it would be like the 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 downfall of the person, or like this is this was my big failure. I tried to make it in Hollywood and I couldn't do it. But no. she's just kind of like, no, okay, acting wasn't for me. I I moved up, you know, from being you know Did whatever she was from like the mailroom or whatever like that. You yeah, know, that, that kind of story. Now I'm a reader and I I want to be a writer and I like, be a writer, like I said before yeah. like. You know. Uh, you know, she realized that maybe, you know, it's fun to be on the other side of the cameras, too. And that's yeah. just fine. And I just, yeah, I love Betty so much in this movie. <laughs> she oh, kind of yeah. shows Joe. Yeah, she just kind of shows him what the other side could be like. Not the obsession. Just being happy with who you are and where you are. And again, not like not having such lofty ambitions that it'll just drag you down even more if you're not successful. No, right. just mm-hmm. that's how, that's what I see her character as. Yeah. Very much, very, very much the opposite of Norma. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, cause I mean, okay. They, they have that little scene where she's um, pretending to be Charlie Chaplin, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is, she's really good, frankly, you know, she is. isn't she glorious? <laughs> Gloria Swanson is just so good in that. And we, we should say, Gloria Swanson was not Norma Desmond. <laughs> Gloria Swanson was a was a successful businesswoman in Hollywood area. She had left movies, but she was very happy with where she, her life. And she decided to do the movie because it was a great part. 
you know, and she liked the idea. That's just of it. she wasn't even acting at this time that she did. This? As far as I know, she was she wasn't. That's cool. Yeah, and it was she was she was doing her own thing and was perfectly happy being. Uh, I don't know exactly what her business was. I, I can't recall off the top of my head, but so. Yeah, so <laughs> there's there's this temptation, I think, to want to equate Gloria Swanson to Norma Desmond, and you can't do that because <laughs> they were not it's the, so iconic, like this. Though. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and she's like, Paramount's on the phone. It's like, wh- who is it? It's like, oh, it's some. Is it Mr. Demille? It's like, no, it's so and so. And it says, well, the if it's, it's hang like, up. Mr. <laughs> some assistant calling me, say I'm busy and hang up. <laughs> I love all that stuff. But then, you know, they go to visit, go to visit Mr. DeMille personally. He's like, oh, it must be about that awful script of hers. <laughs> I know. Um, I love this scene. It's DeMille is another character a, a little bit like Max. They keep running into like little Max is the guy at the gate. Yeah. Who's kind of like a cheat, which I mean, there is a level of respect, I think, that uh-huh. they should have for her, yeah. you know, for what she did you know, like she says you know like made big money for the studio being in all right. these movies so yeah she the shouldn't old, be the old uh the old school gate uh guard is guy at the gate <laughs> is like oh miss desmond doesn't need an appointment let her in yeah yeah and then demille plays into the fantasy a little bit too you know calling her he does. you know so he's, what is he oh it calls her doesn't young, tell her young the truth, fella yeah. Calls her young fella, which yes. is apparently what he actually called her when they when they worked together. That was part of the I joke lo- oh, really? joke between them. Yeah, I um, loved that. When, yeah, when she comes up and he calls her young fella, that's that's cute. And honestly, that scene feels very sweet in a way. Um, it does. It feels like you know. It's it's both. It's very sweet and it's also very dark. <laughs> very dark and very again yeah. very much plays into her illusion. Mm-hmm. Especially the part where Demille's got to go off directing, so yeah, he tells her to to sit in his seat and the the guy up in the one of the gaffers, Hog Eye. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> like yeah. literally puts shines a spotlight on her. And she just immediately goes full in the character there. Yes. You know. <laughs> I, I love right also, before that, though, right before that, though, there's this really funny moment where the boom mic comes down in shot and it's yeah, sort of hitting against her feathers. She just pushes it away. You yeah. know, we don't need talk. <laughs> nice. No more talk. Yeah, exactly. But then all of the cast members coming around mm-hmm. just kind of, a, oh, Miss Desmond, it's welcome home and all that. It's she gets of, that moment yeah. where, you know, she's not which is kind of good you know like she hasn't been completely forgotten by these no. people they still recognize her and know who she is like people in the business and the demille um is that in this in this scene too when um, they're trying to figure out like why you know someone someone from paramount has been calling her but it hasn't been demille because he's been busy working right. on his movie yeah it's gordon <laughs> so cole out, gordon, gordon cole, cole. Yeah, and the real reason that they've been wanting to contact her is because uh, Max had driven onto the lot before and they saw, like, they the want to use her, her old car yeah. for, uh, they want to rent it for uh, a scene in a movie or something. And I think you can see that DeMille does, again, like all the other characters, feel really sorry for her, but yeah. still wants to protect her feelings oh, at all and it, costs. It's actually, it's really kind of heartbreaketing because it's it like, you know, tell Gordon to find some other old car. 
you know. And yeah, he has some line I didn't write down like, either where I can the, 30, this, like thirty million yeah, fans already gave forgot her the about brush. her. Isn't that yeah, enough? Yeah, yeah, isn't that enough? Where he says Ugh. you because because this assistant basically says you know do you want me to give her the brush and he says thirty million fans already did give her the brush. Um, yeah, it's it's tough, you know, because obviously he cares about her and you know and they say. You know, in her day, I can't remember who says it exactly. In her day, she was one of the funniest, wittiest, brightest people that ever stepped in front of a camera. And then in the end, she only became hard to work with in the end. When she had fallen into this fantasy world and had been believed her own press. or right. You see people who become famous when they're young this happens to people and it's it's hard to see them sort of spiral and you know later and this is i think much more sensitive you know like in the 90s or the early 2000s you would see some of these people spiral out of control and they would become like laughter fodder for tmz or whatever you know Mm -hmm. uh, britney spears or or Justin Bieber or whomever, which we've realized now, like all the stuff yeah. going on, you know, with them that we we never mm-hmm. got to see because we were so busy making fun of them, you know, exactly with Britney Spears, Paris Hilton, Lindsay yeah. Lohan, mm-hmm. you know. Paris Hilton actually has quite a good head on her shoulders, you know. As she it does turns out, you know, which, when when she turns uh, off the uh, yeah. the you know the 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 that's hot, the that's voice, hot. Yeah. voice, and you know, and she sits down in an interview like it like um. There's an interview on the Bling Ring Blu-ray of her, and it's just like, oh my gosh, I totally misinterpreted who this person is. And it's so easy to oh, do that because, you know, know. part I've of it is it the too. image they're supposed to portray or think they're supposed to portray, and then the image that the media gives us of these people. And that, it, I think it makes, you know, a movie like this just as relevant now as it was in 1950, you oh, know? Oh, yeah. This means... Yeah. I think this means a lot more to me now that those kind of revelations have come to light. Absolutely. You know, far, far too long after the, the fact, you know, that they should have. But Treating you, these people like people and not commodities in the media is really yeah, got to stop. It seems like you have stars as well who have sort of were once really, really big, you know, who have become sort of the Norma Desmonds of their own minds, you know, living in their castles and taking milk baths <laughs> and lilac. Um, sorry. Um, she, <laughs> you know, and does have a bit of it. In, in this scene too, uh, there are some parts where I was like, okay, your ego is a little bit much lady mm-hmm. when these, when she's talking about, you know, she never works before 10 or after 430. And I was like, <laughs> bitch, so that's not even a full day. <laughs> I know. I know. It's Come very on. funny. <laughs> it's very funny. Um, you know, and I understand, you know, some actors, I like I, I read um, Christopher Lee's autobiography because I just wrote a piece on him. And he has a chapter in an earlier version of his autobiography that says, where he talks about how he pulled out his contract and said, I don't work past 630. It's in my contract, you know, and it was partially because he needed to protect himself because this film shoot was going out of control. But then, you know, he talks about, you know, on like Lord of the Rings, for example, working those longer hours and being fine with it. You know, it it just sort of depends on the situation in some of those things. But in her case, it's just it's just hilarious, and it's just like this is not <laughs> this is not reality. <laughs> this is not a real world kind of situation at all. Again, it's that weird humor, 
that goes through this movie too. But because DeMille doesn't have the heart to tell her that the movie is never going to happen, she just, after this, she falls even deeper into her fantasy. There's a whole montage of her getting all the beauty treatments Mm -hmm. to get done. So she's ready for the camera when everybody everybody knows that you know it's not going to happen but no one will tell her no one and that's what kind of that's what really frustrates me about that but also how how do you do that without you know shattering her spiral shattering yeah and maybe she's already attempted suicide in earlier in the movie you know maybe she's going to do it again and you definitely don't want that. Like, the people around her care about her enough that they're not going to do that. But the, it's also, it's a tough balance to... Well, it's like he says <laughs> in that line, you don't yell at a sleepwalker. Because you yeah. might <laughs> you might break him, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Uh, it's a, oh, that's a, a brutal line in a lot of ways. But, I mean, it's true. That's, yeah. that's why it's so tragic. Because, I mean, any... Any way that they play it could turn into disaster for her, you know? Like, who knows, like, how, how far gone she is? Like, who, how sh- how well would she take it, really, the truth? Yeah, and when... I don't know if she would be able to handle it, honestly. Oh, well, okay, she, really she doesn't. Sure. She doesn't really. When, you know, Joe sort of reveals everything, says, you know, hey, Max, why don't you tell her who's been sending all those fan <laughs> letters, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what cracks her, honestly. He yelled at the sleepwalker. I think that's what happens, honestly. Because, but, but, you know, I mean, that's that's jumping ahead a little bit, but not that far, honestly. We're kind of come to this, yeah. to the things that bring it all to a head because she discovers the she's treatment. She's still a little bit, yeah, she's still a little bit manipulative, you know, after this too, though. Because um, oh, yeah. she's called, Joe catches her calling Betty the mm-hmm. one time too. Yep. You know, talking about now, you've got a good deal here. And she says that line, like, if you love me, Joe. Right. So she's still being a little bit manipulative with that. Like, if you love me, you'll stay kind of thing. Or else. Gosh, yeah. It's. mm. You know, who knows what I'm going to do or what's going to happen to me if you leave me. So you have to stay. Like, that playing that guilt. All the time. That's all she does. All the time. (laughs) That's her MO, I guess. Okay. So that's right. Where So he, this is, you know, Betty, of course, declares her love to Joe. Uh, in that scene. <laughs> and then he catches Norma on the phone talking to Betty and says, all right, this is the address. Come over here. And this is where Joe finally decides to leave. You know, he finally says, I can't, you know, when Betty comes over and he tells her the whole situation and he sort of realizes how horrible he has been in this whole situation, I think too. I think he's finally at that point where he, I mean, it's almost like it's too late to escape, but he finally realizes that he has to. You know, he finally has to break the illusion. It's his almost redemptive moment if he doesn't get shot. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I'm not so sure that she entirely cracks at the end. I think she's still... This is, I think the, the... this is a big debate. <laughs> like okay. I was saying before, like you thought that she was maybe not all there <laughs> at the end that last scene. I don't know that I I still kind of see that as acting in a way too. I think I think there's two different ways you could look at it. I think you could look but at it as like genuinely she's, she's is, completely far gone. Yeah, she could also be acting that too uh, the, okay, for the okay. cameras in a way because there is one point like when Joe is packing up to leave there's a shot like before she goes into his room she could she stops 
and she looks in the mirror and she's still got the little pads on, yeah. on her forehead and on her cheeks, you know, like from the beauty treatment she's doing. And so she's making herself, she takes them off. And so she, it seems to me like she's making herself like camera yeah. ready once again, always. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Sometimes there's a part of me that thinks that maybe she could just still be acting like that whole thing at the end too. It's well, just a different get- way to look at it. It, it is, and it's interesting. I, I, It's not something I thought. I mean, my interpretation has always been, okay, when the police get there, she's just staring at herself in her sort of little hand mirror. But and she, she knows that there are cameras she's, there. She's, this and, is what she's no, wanted. Well, she's well, wanted no, cameras to be surrounding no. her. <laughs> before that. Before that, though. When she hears the word cameras. When, when she, she hears the words up. cameras, when she lights up. Yeah, because before that, she's just staring at herself. She's not hearing what they're saying to her. And then she hears the word cameras and she's like, cameras? Tell Mr. DeMille I'll be on set at once. But I mean, she thinks her house, (laughs) she thinks her house is the Paramount soundstage. She walks down the grand staircase of the quote unquote palace and she says, all right, all of those love, my, my comeback. It's so nice to have you all here. And she thinks all the people around her are crew. She walks down the steps and she goes, she goes, oh, and the extras. It's so wonderful to be back. And she says, all right, Mr. DeMille. And it's Max. I'm ready for my close up. The only yeah, thing I that Ma- the only thing that Max and DeMille have in common is they're both bald men. I mean, <laughs> it's just I I guess I guess I've I always seen that as she has completely she has made herself ready to go into a padded room. I mean that is what <laughs> that is where she's going right after this. That's I'm all. not saying you're wrong. <laughs> I'm not saying you're wrong. Okay, oh, fair, enough. fair enough. Fair enough. Jeez. Fair enough. I am offering a different perspective. Jeez. And I appreciate it. And I appreciate it. I like impassioned discussion. Because that's how I saw it too the first time. But this time, yeah. I don't know. I was just thinking about You're it in different more, ways. But... more as a... And I... Because mm-hmm. the way that she's acting throughout the whole movie, I was like, well, whoa, wait, wait a She's minute. always what if she's acting. Still, yeah. mm-hmm. What if she's still acting? Because oh, um, those, all those people that are kind of surround, like in the scene, like you were saying, where she's just staring at herself in the mirror, like there are still people surrounding her, all asking her questions. This is what she wants. Yep. She wants she's been wanting this attention from the public back again you know Ooh. you know oh, and so they're man. and they're finally here they're finally back and she hears the word yeah. cameras oh there's cameras in the house now finally like i can this is what i've wanted to happen this whole time we've so been preparing for the whole movie is to be in front of the cameras again so she's feigning crazy yeah she could be i think so she could be that's what i'm she, saying she, yeah <laughs> i don't know uh, i don't know either but that uh yeah that's Pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, no matter how you slice Who it. Who knows? No matter how Whatever you how right, you though. how you read it, it's a great movie. Oh, well, there's one more cameo I forgot in this last scene too. Head of Hopper. Hopper. <laughs> That's right, on the phone. That's a good one. Obviously we've we talked about her on the Citizen Kane episode a little bit, uh gossip columnist, uh maker and breaker of careers all over the place. Uh her and Walter mm-hmm. Winchell. Um Anyway, and it's kind of funny because it sort of made me think of her again in when I was watching Barton Fink, when Charlie says to him, you're in pictures. This could ruin you. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, it, it just made me think of that kind of thing. Even though these movies are, are so far apart, 
mm-hmm. in when they were made. Yeah. They both kind of take place around the same time. They do. Yeah. And <laughs> Which I, I kind of like. I think Barton thinks a little bit earlier. It's like the early 40s. Like 40, 41 is what it said. Yeah. Would, I would look it up. Yeah. Which would make sense because by the end of the movie, um, Michael Lerner's character, uh, Lipnick, is a colonel, uh, quote unquote. Uh, it hasn't been made official yet. Uh, Wardrobe <laughs> put this together for me. Some of the lines in that movie go so fast. It's like, I don't know. I know. Uh, but anyway, um, last word about uh, Sunset Boulevard. I think it's a perfect movie. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, like I said before, incredible. like there's a reason why some movies are classics. And mm-hmm. this is definitely an example of that. If you've never seen this and you don't know that it's going to live up to the hype. Fuck yeah, it will. Because it's a great movie. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, perfect. One of the best. It's just an incredible film. All right. And so it's interesting that how well uh, Barton Fink pairs with this movie uh, in a lot of ways, because, I mean, we got a we got the whole screenwriter thing and um, yep. is our sort of key similarity. Um, Both screenwriters having issues with their mm-hmm. current situation at the time. Yeah. yeah. One has writer's block and one mm-hmm. just they're can't. both kind of trapped in a prison of yeah. sorts. Um Though I think Barton Fink is actually trapped in hell, and I think the hell is in his own head. Uh, I, <laughs> no, think, I think, you so know, <laughs> I think all of the Hotel Earl in this movie may well be Barton Fink's own mind, and he's trapped inside it. This is, okay, this is the most Coen Brothers of Coen Brothers movies, in my opinion. Okay, it's one of the, because they famously never talk about their own movies. They mm-hmm. never give you any insight into what they're, quote unquote, about. Because they are, they just want to leave it up to the audience. It's the audience's movie now. You know, it's up, it's up to you to think and feel about it how you think and feel about it. And I think that's kind of the brilliance of it is that it's so inscrutable. But it's the way it's made, though, it's so, to me, this movie is paced like perfectly. I, I, there's, there's not a moment that I feel the length of in this movie. It just kind of hits the ground and and goes even though a lot of elements of it kind of move slowly i don't know how to describe that but it's <laughs> it's the, not a fast paced it's no movie. it's not got a lot of action it's yeah <laughs> the movie is just kind of a contradiction in a lot of ways <laughs> <laughs> it's a series of scenes and images that don't really make a whole lot of sense <laughs> yeah not necessarily still <laughs> right I mean, even from the opening shot, I'm thinking, okay, this movie, we're dealing with hell of some sort because they, it, the opening credits are over that wallpaper <laughs> that has that sort of, and no, it's not fire, but it, it kind of this plant, this palm leaf pattern that kind of looks like fire on the walls. <laughs> and then, you know, it cuts to, you know, that the flies of, the stage, you know, and sort of this thing descending out of heaven, uh, the hook descending out of heaven. And the opening play is, I think, really important because, you know, it's like the the lines there, you know, we're going to hear from that kid again. And I don't mean a postcard, you know, and then all the fishmonger stuff. It, it, it always comes through every uh, Barton Fink is like obsessed with fish and fishmongers. Uh, <laughs> yes. it, it's very funny. Um, I didn't think the opening play was really that well written. 
No, it's terrible. It's, that's the whole point. It's terrible. It's so bad. Yeah, it's awful. That's that's I think that's the point. And because and and you have Gabriel Byrne in this weird cameo where he's basically dressed like his character in Miller's Crossing uh as sort of the lead of the play. Really? Yeah. It's a blink and you miss it kind of thing. He has his head down I and must stuff. have blinked. Yeah. It's it's this wonderful moment um where he just sort of passes Barton as he comes back out for his bow. And then when when the stagehand comes out and yells fish fresh fresh, fish, fish and then and then Barton just kind of closes his eyes and shakes his head a little bit and that right from the beginning you see how how far his head is up his own ass because yep. he's always talking about the common man and here's a common man and he's shaking his head at him right from the mm. very beginning like critiquing his performance he has this yeah. like one little line to give while yeah. he's simultaneously you know being the stagehand like pulling the curtains exactly. and everything yeah mm-hmm. he, all, he, all he has to do is like be the voice in the background and he doesn't like the way he did it apparently yeah, yeah. but it's kind of but it's very much like the theater crowd is mm. like hollywood like kissing yeah. his ass mm-hmm. um because mm-hmm. it's this upper crust audience apparently that just thinks whatever he wrote is just fucking brilliant it's like they, they loved the play i mean all the affectations of voices in this are so funny i mean and that's another thing that sort of that sort of draws it back to you know the style of movie that they're the era of movie that they're where this is taking place and things like that as well you know the high society people and then you have you know wp and and uh audrey have these really heavy southern accents that are (laughs) Mm. Kind of a little bit otherworldly. And the way that Lipnick talks and everything is so funny. <laughs> and it's so... Off- the detectives are my favorite. The detectives. Oh, my God. I mean... I adore them. <laughs> every time I watch this, I catch a little bit more of what the detectives are even saying because they say it so fast. Subtitles. I had to have the subtitles I know. On. <laughs> it's so it's funny. It's so funny. We'll talk about that when nice we get tits, to it. Nice tits, no head. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. Or it says... A physician heal thyself kind of hard to do without a head um (laughs) (laughs) i know anyway killed me um yeah this high society stuff right at the beginning of the movie is you know his agent telling him you know capital pictures wants to put you under contract he says but i want to stay here i have a creation of a new living theater for the common man you know he's always pontificating about the common man when he has no idea who the common man is he's probably never been you know a part of that group you know he's kind of feels if he's been able to make a living as a writer he's a creator you know (laughs) i'm a creator my uniform (laughs) this is my uniform his agent tells him go to hollywood make some money meet some people the common man will still be here when you get back (laughs) and it just kind of goes right for it you know he's in california the hotel earl can we talk Uh, about john turturro for a second though we gotta talk about john (laughs) turturro for a second he is amazing he's one of those Mm -hmm. actors that you just you see and you just you always know you're gonna give get a great performance out of him you're always gonna get a great character uh, especially in the cohen stuff yeah i mean my fa- i would say my favorite cohen brothers movie is probably a brother or at that yeah uh, i have so i have so Do much fun with that one see the treasure <laughs> he's fucking hilarious and i didn't see this movie until a couple of years ago actually uh-huh. and just being able to see him in a lead role i don't think i had seen him in no nah, uh, he's usually a as much of a actor, lead yeah. before this yeah he's was so well, great. i love he's, him in he's, everything you know, like big lebowski that's right yeah nobody fucks with his jesus i mean it's so <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
so funny. He's amazing. <laughs> Getting to see even more of him in this movie was just an absolute treat. Oh, yeah. And his character is, is a lot of fun. He's not as, he's not doing as much of a character character as he mm-hmm. would as he does in other movies he's yeah. kind of more straight where everybody else gets to be the big over the yeah. top characters mm-hmm. but he's he's got his moments where he's still good and yeah i just love just wanted to say i love john Turturro. he's great <laughs> yeah absolutely and one of the things also like a character in this movie is his hair it, it right, just right. it just gets thing. <laughs> taller and taller as the movie goes on i think it's yeah. uh it's amazing it's amazing so i mean Okay, walking into the Hotel Earl, you immediately get a sense that something is off, right? That this is something's a wrong at this place. Weird, yeah. weird place. And he rings the bell, and it just rings and rings and rings forever. And Chet, you know, Steve Buscemi. I love Steve Buscemi in this. He's only in like two scenes in the whole movie, uh, but it's all you need of him in this. And exactly. it's perfect. And he comes up through a From trap below. door in the, the ground and you hear him approaching it and like climbing a ladder and all this. And then he just touches his finger to the bell to get it to stop. And then he writes his dialogue, name. I'm, he says, he says, my name is Chet. Twice. Chet like <laughs> he says his name is Chet like a bunch of times. My name is Chet. <laughs> and he writes, um, he writes his name the, down on, on the piece of paper with a little exclamation point. Chet. Trans- or resident res okay <laughs> but yeah we definitely both had the same thoughts that this hotel is definitely hotel hell yeah it's, it it's is hell in a way and there are a lot of clues to that i think uh yeah. immediately he's well he's on the sixth floor right so he goes over mm-hmm. to the elevator and he says six please and pete the elevator operator says next stop six then they pull up <laughs> to the floor this stop six so they say 666 in the elevator. So there's ah, okay. a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a little little Satan reference there. And then he goes in his room and it's just, it's a dive. And and you can hear through the walls and the ugly wallpaper that just sort of sweats. <laughs> and then there's that one picture on the wall of the woman on the beach. It's sort of like this portal of freedom, mm-hmm. you know, this glimpse uh, into paradise or something like that, you know, that is just more torturous because it's inside of hell you know right. uh, it's, it's it's always hot always hot in this mm-hmm. hotel one thing i kind of thought too could kind of go along with both or that it could be like his own head or his own hell is that there's nobody else in the hotel except for him and shit and the elevator guy and yet that one part where he he looks outside every single room has a pair of shoes yes outside of it like Where's everybody else? Exactly. Oh, besides him and um, Charlie. Charlie. Sorry. Forget about yeah. Charlie. Where's everybody? Where are all these other guests? I know. <laughs> so that's a very unsettling thing about this place. Yeah. It's something I didn't really think about until this viewing was all those shoes out in the hallway. And, you know, the idea of where is everybody else? And, you know, you can hear the, the couple next door having sex all the time. You know, that kind of thing. But it's almost like those things are just there to annoy him (laughs) Uh Uh, and distract him. Those shoes kind of got me thinking about like maybe like lost souls in hell Mm -hmm. that you you can't see or something. I don't know. And I think this movie is a lot of lost souls, you know, trying to figure out. I think when we get to Audrey and Bill, especially, I think those are, you know, I really feel like Bill has sold his soul. 
And then Audrey is just sort of allowed it to be corrupted. And uh, she's kind of like Max in a yeah. way. Oh, Placating yeah. You're, she very much is. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. that's a great point. But okay, Michael Lerner <laughs> as, as, I love him. <laughs> as Jack Lipnick is so funny. And again, so it's one funny. of those it's one of those performances where it's like you have to watch it several times to catch what he's even saying because he's just a one thing after another all the time, and you know it <laughs> doesn't sort of, really go together. He's very non sequitur with what he says. Too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love it. Love that. And uh, it's it's so supposed to be based on you know these moguls of that period, you know Louis B. Mayer, oh, yeah. David O. Selznick, people like that. And it's so good. The guys in charge of things who don't really know what they're talking about, who right. have no creative drive of their own, like just have to kiss the ass of the writer. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, his assistant, Lou, who actually seems to be the one who actually yeah. runs the studio. Yes. Um, <laughs> and he's very grim and dark. And he's sort of this interesting presence. Um, I think he's... Really, uh, yeah, it's a uh, Joe Polito. I'm sorry, John Polito as Lou uh, is, and again, another actor that ends up in a lot of Cohen movies. Um, he's in The Big Lebowski's and Miller's Crossing, uh, things like that. So he's just terrific. Um, but you know, that the, the, the writer is king here at Capital Pictures, you know, uh, which is clearly not true <laughs> at all. It says, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna start you off with a wrestling picture." It's like it's like you know you know the drill, and um, <laughs> that that's he all. Doesn't <laughs> he doesn't have any idea at all? He's never seen. He claims to be wanting to be connected to the common man, but he's never seen the kind of movies that they would go see. Uh, exactly. For for example, and you know he sort of looks down his nose at the movies when the movies were the theater of the common man, and the quote unquote theater legitimate theater the theater of the yeah. common man he's trying to create would only ever be able to be afforded to for people to go to by people who are rich <laughs> you yeah. know if that makes <laughs> sense it's so it's it's an interesting um uh, it's another example of his hypocrisy oh yeah yeah they would not be going to see the kind of things that he would write especially about them or I, I like he's surrounded by by the common man but yeah he's absolute hypocrite he doesn't listen to them and the only ones who actually call him out on it which i think is fucking hilarious is the detectives yeah <laughs> that's one of my favorite scenes is when they first meet and um, oh in the hotel lobby says, as great, ma- yeah yeah as a matter of fact um, i'm writing for the pictures now and the, what's the first thing he says big fucking deal <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> you know i love that yeah. <laughs> just immediately calls him out on it and he still doesn't really see it you know mm-hmm. he doesn't really see that they're hey we're right in front of you and we don't give a fuck <laughs> you know what how big you think you are you don't know anything about us right. clearly so when he goes back to his hotel he's, so he's given like a week to write come up with something or, or to mm-hmm. get a because i mean it's supposed to be just a basic cookie cutter kind of plot you know with wrestlers <laughs> you know yeah. says you know as audrey says like this is easy like yeah. there's a formula to it yeah <laughs> just follow the formula just follow much. the formula yeah. and he refuses to do that ironic yep. when we get to that point though um because <laughs> obviously he writes down you know fade in a tenement building in the lower east side the sound of fishmongers is audible or the sound of traffic is audible as is the sound of fishmongers so he's already he's back to the fishmongers again <laughs> yeah He's writing his play again, right? I mean, that's the impression that I get, is that he's writing his play over again. 
when or he's he, just not as creative yeah. as he thinks he is yeah. you know yeah. to to come, he keeps recycling the same old ideas yeah yeah i i think that is uh and then he hears the sound from next door and it it sounds like l- maniacal laughter or crying or something it's cry laughing yeah, yeah it's very eerie it's it's up to in, a lot of interpretation i love that about it and he calls chet <laughs> someone's making a lot of then he whispers noise nice. <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> so many of the way the performances are delivered in this are just hilarious to me. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. And you hear it through the wall. You hear the conversation through the wall, the sort of the kind of kind of conversation through the wall. And then you hear him coming. You can hear the footsteps of him coming over. That's the best. The way yeah. that they that he shoots that like following the footsteps like and just yeah. you're, you're feeling really scared for, for Barton because like, yeah he knows he you know and he knows what's coming and like oh god the person that I called about is because mm-hmm. he, he's being a little complainer and he knows yeah. the person's gonna call him out on it and he, and he has no backbone no spine this guy at all well, and you can tell <laughs> whoever's behind that door is huge just by the shadow, right. <laughs> you know. And this is one of the my favorite character introductions in a movie, oh, is man. he opens the door and it's John Goodman. We uh, get to talk about John Goodman again. In, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. In one of one of my fa- – I mean, I can't think of a performance from John Goodman that I don't like, to be honest with you. Every single oh, yeah. one of them is just – I mean, and Coen Brothers movies for him are just – He just shines. Oh. Yeah. I mean, Raising Arizona, um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And the small part he's got in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Of course, Big Lebowski. Yeah, I, I love him in Big Lebowski so much. I, he's so funny in Big Lebowski. And then here is just, it's such a brilliant role. Yeah. And he- Here he gets, to, he's playing exactly what I love about him as an mm-hmm, actor. Mm-hmm. The way that he is so charming and lovable and yeah. yet can also be so scary. Yeah. And he does both brilliantly. He does, oh. And, you know, it's it's sort of, you know, you see glimpses of like, you know, his 10 Cloverfield Lane exactly. kind of stuff, yeah. you know, where he's really scary. Or it's but, just bubbling underneath the surface. You can see it like, yeah. coming out. But then as soon as he smiles and he's just- You're just completely such, disarmed. <laughs> yeah. Because he's, he's just got that look about him, that jovial like guy look that- it, Yeah. And the way that he's- I like. I kind of think about him in um, a brother Arthur too. Like the the line that he has, like like ice, uh, the line that um, George Clooney um, has to him, or like, oh, I see, like me, like you're, you have the gift of gab, and they they're able to, because he's able, he's the kind of character and the kind of person I think in real life it seems like to be able to just talk to anybody, you know, make friends with anybody and get anybody to to love him because that's just kind of the the charm that he can put on. And he does that in this while also at the the way that he kind of turns like in this first scene where, um, you know, and he's just got the blank look on his face for like uncomfortably long amount of time, you know, before he finally smiles. He says, someone complained <laughs> and he says and then he just sort of smiles and says, i'm sorry about that you know yeah. i can just be, you know and it's just like it's so scary <laughs> and and he's got just that when he smiles he likes his whole face you know his eyes and yeah he, his, he has sort of like this rosy cheek blush that his comes out face, it seems yeah, like when he smiles it's it's just it's an incredible thing um with him and you know he introduces himself my name is charlie metal meadows and you know it's, i sell peace of mind which i think i wrote that two ways because obviously peace of mind but also like peace of mind like a piece of your head 
Um, I, I think there's there's all these things that are sort of implanted in there about heads with him, you know, and he brings them up a lot throughout this. Yeah. And it's really funny. Um, and it's what's gr- in the box. What's in the box? <laughs> that's what's in the total, box. That's totally. What, yeah. I mean, it, that's exactly what he's looking at that thing. Like, uh, that's exactly what my note was. What's in the box? <laughs> I mean, I, Okay. And this scene, this scene is so key because mm-hmm. there. I think so. Yeah, this this is the moment where he could he could break his writer's block right now in this scene if he just shut up for a minute, mm-hmm. you know, because he starts <laughs> exactly. pontificating and going on and on about the Comet Man and all this BS. And and what does Charlie say? Well, I could tell you some I stories. Tell you some stories. I mean, if he just sit sat and listened to charlie's story or stories he could bang that script out the next day there's i know there's no doubt about that in my mind and i love the way that john goodman could portray that just the look on his face that he gives every time he interrupts him he's He's just pissed he's pissed and he's like okay you wanted stories i'm telling you i have stories yeah but then (laughs) okay and, and he has this lovely way about it because okay because Barton's going off about nobody cares about, you know, King so-and-so and old lady who killed. Yeah. And he says, Charlie says, I can feel my butt getting sore already. I... <laughs> <laughs> Again, yes. he's just so charming and yeah. funny and can yeah. really disarm you with that. Uh, we yeah. love John Goodman. Yeah. We've already, we already talked about how much we loved him, but it's not a problem to talk about how much we love him again. <laughs> uh, never. It, I've been al- never. I'm always happy to talk about him. Okay. Now, I love that the only person in this movie that is writing until the end of the movie is Ben Geisler's secretary. Geisler? <laughs> yeah. Geisler? Geisler. Geisler? <laughs> another Tony great Shalhoub. Okay. Tony Shalhoub. This, here's, another, here's another actor we can talk about that I absolutely love. Yeah. Tony Shalhoub. For this is so time, unlike I anything. Only, yeah, I know. Yeah. I... I only knew him for the longest time. I love Monk so much. Yeah, I've never watched Monk, and I know that <laughs> I should. You never watched Monk? Yeah. He is, he's so good in that. He's so freaking hilarious. But, like, I've been... So that's that's all I really knew him from for the most part. But kind of over the years, I've been seeing him pop up in other movies like this. And mm-hmm. he is so good. He's oh, so he's funny. Incredible. He can. He's completely different here than he is in Monk, of course. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's freaking... He's absolutely hilarious. I love him. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I love him in this. And he's so cynical about everything. Uh-huh. You know, he sees Hollywood for what it is. You know, it's a sausage factory. And, you know, he's talking about, you know. <laughs> he's Barton's kind of like, the opposite of, of Lipnick, though. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's telling him like it is instead of, you yeah. know, kissing his ass. And <laughs> Hello. And, how's Lipnick's ass smell this morning? <laughs> yeah, I love that part. <laughs> Hey, Lou, how does Lipnick's ass smell this morning? Um, But I think when they go out to lunch there, they're Mm -hmm. just in that little cafe. And he tells him, just talk to another writer. And he goes, who? Throw a rock in here and you'll hit one. And do me a favor, Fink. Throw it hard. (laughs) (laughs) So good. And then then he, you know, later is calling Bill Mayhew a souse. Talented souse. (laughs) Souse. Legendary souse. Good stuff. But again, it's it's one of these characters that's only in a couple of scenes, but is completely steals the scenes that he's in. Yeah. And you definitely get like what he's supposed to represent and Exactly. You know. And John Turturro 
is l- very generous as an actor because he lets them have the scene. He doesn't try. He doesn't try and push his way in. He's like, I know that I'm in every shot of this movie, so this is your I'm time. Just to gonna, try. This is your time. Yeah, and I love that about him in this too, because he has his over the top moment. You know, mm-hmm. especially I think of the USO scene where he really gets to play it to the back row. You know, but it's rare in this movie for him this is when he meets bill too yeah john mahoney i was eating while i was watching this part and the sound effect of him puking in the bathroom was so (laughs) loud and so gross (laughs) it's pretty bad yeah it's so bad that doesn't mean anything i'm sorry just a little note i had i was like that's a little much. It's but it's yeah. like also again like something so over the top. Yeah. That it's just nothing about anybody or anything that he encounters while he's out here in Hollywood seems real. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, John Mahoney I think is one of those sort of underrated actors too. Um I mean, I think people like him when they see him, but he just wasn't in as much as I would have liked to see him in, you know, because he I was don't know him. He was uh he's the dad and say anything. Of course he's Fraser Crane's father on Fraser, uh, which is Fraser. <laughs> he's so brilliant. John Mahoney uh, as their dad is sort of the perfect foil. You know, he's completely unpretentious, whereas you know the sons are very pretentious, and that that's a little bit of that here. Even though he's an intellectual in this movie uh, and a literary person, you know, sort of a literary titan, right? He's kind of an unpretentious one. Uh, when when you get to certain scenes. And unfortunately, he's a drunk. You know, he's sort of traded in his talent for a whiskey bottle. I think he feels like he sold his soul for this living. You know, I had talent last year. This year, I'm trying to make a living. I, I think that's where that road ends up with this particular character. Or he's kind of done the same mm-hmm. thing that Barton is sort of being... Yeah. forced to do is like just write yeah. all of these minuscule you know movies that don't really have movies. anything to say which again is there's a place for those kinds of movies too like yeah of course there is you don't have to be so egotistical about it like right. if it pays the bills you should be cool with it but the, yeah yeah there is an understanding that you want to be doing something more just as long as you don't get like barton does and mm-hmm. be so far up your own ass right well, and the studio and be system, truly honest and real about it, right? And the studio system was a different matter, you know, because yeah, it was pretty brutal to be a writer in Hollywood at this time. It was the writer was not king. Let's put it that way. The director was not king. You know, it was the moguls. It was the producers. These were the people, and not even the producers on individual films. You know, like the studio heads. These were the ones that were calling the shots. Everyone else was kind of in a sausage factory, you know, putting being put through the grinder all the time. Mm. So it wasn't necessarily a very glamorous time. You know, we you, you think about Hollywood glamour and that was sort of the facade of it. But there's some dark shit <laughs> going down oh, yeah. during that time. It still is, of course. But I mean, I think it's, you know, the dream factory was a nightmare for a lot of people. It really was. Yeah. You know, and uh, W.P. Mayhew is uh, loosely based on William Faulkner, uh, the Southern writer, who 
wrote under lots of pseudonyms uh, in Hollywood. And uh, it's only it's only kind of coming out now exactly what movies he wrote uh, that people really? actually know what they are. Yeah. Um, so I, I can't name any off the top of my head, to be honest with you. But, Dang it, Ryan. Yeah, I wish <laughs> I could. Again. None whatsoever. Um, but I think that's, <laughs> that's an interesting thing. Um, okay. Judy Davis as Audrey Taylor. Another tragic figure. Very yeah. tragic figure here. When he can't write, he drinks, you know? So I love the way she delivers some of these lines to, well, when she first meets Bartner, you see, I'm not just Bill's secretary. You see, Bill and I are in love. (laughs) (laughs) She's his quote unquote personal secretary. (laughs) Right. Um, And as we find out later, she's, like you said, I mean, she's very much a Max character. She's writing a lot of his scripts. I mean, or all of them. And even wrote the last couple novels, as it turns out. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it was merely editorial. So she's still kind of enabling him, but she also still calls him out on it. She does. uh, That that picnic scene. The picnic scene, yeah. um, Mm -hmm. Which is very sad. When when he says something offhand, like, oh, he's holding up the big whiskey bottle, like, this helps. And she just immediately says, that doesn't help anything at all, Bill. And then Barton agrees. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she tries. And, you know, again, I mean, with... With John Mahoney and even with Judy Davis, they're really only in a couple of scenes, mm-hmm. you know, but they matter so much to the scope of the movie. And, and you know, after sort of missing, not having that, when he meets, after he meets Audrey, he goes back, and he just stares at that blank page. You know, that is just the absolute dread of a writer, right? Is this yep. blank page. <laughs> yes, but then Charlie knocks on the door and he's kind of happy to see him, you know, to have someone to talk to and... The whole thing about his ear infection. I gotta, I gotta use cotton in my ears to staunch the flow of pus. He says it so happily. It's <laughs> the way so, he's, uh, <laughs> the way he smiles when he says yeah. <laughs> And I, I always thought it's almost like now this was this is a weird reading, but it's almost like he's keeping his brain from flowing out of his <laughs> ear, which I know is just a weird image that I have with yeah. that. But it's a, it's a weird movie <laughs> so i guess it makes but me then, think of that stuff yeah i read that in the in the article that you wrote which is a brilliant article you should share that when this episode comes out sure because i when you said that that kind of reminded me of like when barton does actually sit down and he like bangs the whole script out in one go he does the same thing he puts cotton in his ears yeah uh, he put cotton in his ears could be for two reasons could be you know keep out the noise and the distractions that have been you know plaguing him the whole movie is being distracted every time he sits down to write uh-huh. could be he could be like you said like trying to keep everything in his head <laughs> right so he doesn't so he doesn't lose it so he doesn't lose it and you know and it's funny because charlie also says you know what can i do can't trade my head in for a new one and barton says yep you're stuck with the one you got which again is that idea that of hell in his own mind you know because okay the the wallpaper thing in this movie and the mosquito too uh-huh the wallpaper like really creeps me out because it looks like <laughs> flesh <laughs> It does. It is this literal flesh peeling off of the wall with like some kind of. It's supposed to be glue. Glue. Like, there's yeah, no way. You don't, weird, you don't need that sweaty, much sweaty, gross glue. Yeah. You don't need that much glue on the wallpaper. It's like yeah. all in the first time. It's all over his hands. Yeah. And when he tries to push it back, like it kind of oozes out. Yeah, it does feel very much because 
like repulsion was an inspiration you oh, know, for yeah, this or the thing the thing about you know your surroundings uh, matching you know what's going on inside your own your head mo- things yeah. are mm-hmm. cracking and things are falling apart <laughs> the, the wallpaper just it just creeps me out mostly <laughs> which i because <laughs> like, yeah. it looks like flesh to me <laughs> i had never thought of that but that is really a great insight i like that a lot well and, and here we also get that first line of the life of the mind, that phrase, the life of the mind, there's no roadmap for that. You travel there, you travel alone and in pain, you know, is basically what he says. <laughs> then he talks about how he's doing a wrestling picture, goes, a wrestling picture? Oh, yeah, Barry's great. I, you know, I used to do a little wrestling. And again, there you go. Here's inspiration sitting yep. right in front of him. Exactly. And he shows him the wrestling move. And there's, to me, there's a little bit of homoeroticism a in this scene. Thing there. You know, it says usually there's a little bit more wriggling around before it, <laughs> before the other guy gets pinned, <laughs> and you're out of your weight class. You know, some of that, some of the lines are there's there's definitely a, a an undertone going on there. Well, he's talking to the detectives. Like, yeah, they bring that up. We wrestled. Yes, they bring that up. <laughs> he's a man. He's we a wrestled. man. We wrestled. <laughs> Get over yourself, Fink. That's one of my favorite lines. I love that. I know. Uh, now, there's a, there's a line here. The, uh, this is the picnic scene again. Um, so this mm-hmm. is before, before the drinking and uh, talks about the drinking and stuff. Barton says, I believe that writing comes from a deep inner pain. And Bill just says, really? Me? I just enjoy making things up. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that. I was going to that too. Again, with Barton just being in his own head, he's like just spouting off all this stuff that it, it, that doesn't feel sincere at all to me when he Mm-mm. says that Mm-mm. about feeling the pain and, you know, the writing coming from that. That just feels like that's what he's supposed to feel. Like that's shit that he's heard before that he's just spouting off that he doesn't really believe and that he doesn't yeah. adhere to. That's just more like he's just as fake as everybody around him is and he doesn't realize it. You know, it's it, his big thing, I think. Yeah. You know, weirdly, <laughs> sorry, I'm tangenting again, but this bring this reminds me that's of what you're good at, Brian. I'm good at it. Um, this reminds <laughs> me of this. There's a documentary on David Lynch and, you know, and he kind of comments not on this movie specifically, but he says, you know, a lot of artists think that you have to be in pain to create. And he says, I find it to be completely the opposite of that, that when things are going well is when I'm most creative. I'm able to reach into those places and bring these things out. And and I think that's, that's true. Yeah, I agree. And I feel I think, that too. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what Bill is saying there. He's at his best when he's just enjoying making things up. When he can't make things up is when he drinks, you know, or when he's forced to do something that doesn't come from him or come from a place of his truth. You know, he doesn't know what to do, so he drinks. You know, everyone comes to the Great Salt Lick eventually. That's why we acquire such a powerful thirst, right? Mm, Um, I love that line, too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So many. And uh, that's the thing. You know, the Coen's just brilliant dialogue. And, you know, and I was going to say a lot of the... A lot of the acting in this movie, sort of the speed talking acting, reminds mm-hmm. me of their next movie, The Hudsucker Proxy, where they're just yeah. where you have that sort of banter. Oh God, quick, that's another one I love. Quick too. cut stuff, yeah. Would that be my favorite? No, damn. <laughs> it was for a while for me. I really like that movie. Yeah, I mean, I think I usually come back to Fargo, but um, I know it's it's hard to it's leave hard that to one think. out, right? Yeah. Well, I was just gonna say, I was like, if 
if it's true, like that they wrote this because they had writer's block, you know, working on Miller's Crossing. Right. And that this was just something Which that they Which may be a legend wrote. they just created. I know. If it's yeah. if it's true that this is something that they wrote like on the fly, but it's got so much going on with like symbolism and stuff like then they're just even more brilliant than I thought. If that's true, you know, that yeah. they could, this could just be something they wrote not even really thinking about it. And yet they put so much into this. Yeah. And I think that this maybe is, they didn't uh, even realize. I don't know. At the same time, this, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that I'm not sure they entirely know what it means either, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I think, you know, because, you know, Bergman said stuff about that too, where it's like, I don't know entirely what this movie means. It just feels right. What is the shot of the rock with the wave crashing up on it? Like, what does that mean? Why is that repeat in here? Oh, I, that's a good question. I mean, maybe because the ocean represents, you know, sort of that freedom um, to be out of your hell or your purgatory. And the rock is just standing in the way of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I got it now. I don't know. I mean, that's... If the picture of the woman on the beach is the portal out of hell into something good, then yeah, the... The beach and the ocean would represent that and the rock would be like his own head, whatever is stopping him in his own head from being able to. Yeah. Damn it. I found meaning in it and I thought there was nothing. (laughs) And that's the thing about this movie is I think that there are as many interpretations of this movie as there are human beings who watch it because it is just got so many kinds of things you can pull out of it if you want or you can just watch it for this i saw this weird ass movie i like movies that do that like like many times before like we love the movies that don't give you any like definitive answers the ones that are kind of frustrating because they make you discuss them that's that's what's fun about them to me it's not like this is the right way to look at it when there's several ways to look at it is when they're even more intriguing yeah exactly exactly yeah that that scene uh, the picnic scene is really sad i mean obviously he's waste uh Bill is wasted and just, you know, he uh, sort of strikes her, <laughs> Audrey, and um, wanders well, it's off. It's both accidental and, and yeah. on purpose in a way at the same time. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and, and that son of a bitch, you know, and again, I don't know if Barton really even believes that. He's trying to play the hero. Oh, yeah, because he, he says, that son of a bitch. And then he's like, oh, but he's also a great writer. Don't get me wrong. He's a very talented writer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, it's, come on. Yeah. And, and when her, the look on her face is like, that's something that she's used to. That's, yeah. That's probably not the first time that it's ever happened. Oh, no. I, it's certainly not. Because, I mean, she even says, oh, he'll come back after he gets sober. After he sobers mm-hmm. up, he'll wander, he'll wander back. Uh, so, obviously, this is something that's happened a bunch of times with them. And they've been together for a very long time, even though he's married. His wife is back home wherever they live. <laughs> and he just wanders off on the street singing that old song. And it's very sad. You know, and then he, then mm-hmm. he, he takes her home. But, or she takes him home is probably more like it. But... Then he tries to write again, and he writes the words, a large man in tights. And he just stares at the words, like, I can't believe I just wrote that. And then he gets the knock. And, you know, he puts his feet in the shoes, and they're too big for him. And he right. the knock of the door, and Charlie once again. And, you know, obviously, the, the parts that I think that everyone remembers of this movie more than anything are the scenes between Barton and Charlie. You yeah. know? Two great character actors coming together coming to play. Together. Like, uh-huh. what more 
do you want to see in a movie? Come on. You know, they finally switch shoes. And uh, this is where he talks about how he went and saw a doctor and he told him, I, I told him, he told me I had an ear infection, $10, please. Well, that led to an argument. And we find out later what that argument, argument entailed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the doctor didn't quite come out of that argument uh, ahead, yeah. shall we say? Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, this whole thing is like, we're just, can you can hear them through the walls? It says, I can practically hear how they're doing it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> practically see how they're doing it, yeah. Yeah, practically see how they're doing it. But um, it says, it's like I hear everything that goes on in this dump. It's like he's the lord and master of this building in a, in a way. And he hates it. He hates that he's stuck in this place as much as anybody, I think. And so, hey, where there's a head, there's hope. And then Barton corrects him, where there's life, there's hope. And he's like, well, that's why you're the writer. And this is where Barton gives Charlie his his parents' address, you know, where he tells yeah, them where yeah. they live. Ugh. <laughs> and because he's heading off uh, to the head office. Again, the head <laughs> just keeps coming up. The head right. office. And then we're back to... Uh, Tony Shalhoub, Lipnick likes you. He's taken an interest. Never let Lipnick like you. <laughs> Which is another kind of, I saw that as kind of another kind of Hollywood thing there where everybody's kind of playing their parts because Lipnick says the same thing about Geisler at the end. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> he says, for some reason, he likes you. For some reason, he likes you. It's like, well, that's so, the same thing that. He has a big heart. That's why he's fired. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's it's interesting that that's the case because Barton is kind of a thoroughly unlikable person. <laughs> he kind of is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we're somehow on his side, uh, even though it's no one in this movie that really comes off 100% scot-free, you know. Everyone's got a dark side, at least a little bit, if not entirely. Audrey's pretty good. Audrey's pretty close to to the pure, but uh, but again, she's the enabler and she allows... Um, True. She's the max. She does, she's doing the same She's doing the same thing. Exactly. Some un unethical practices of uh, with uh, Bill and his writing and things like that. Well, that's his fault. That's not her but fault. I know. <laughs> I know. It's true. But, you know, he's trying to... Is this where he's trying to watch the the dailies of the wrestling movie? <laughs> I will destroy him! Over and over and over again. Lipnick sends him to, like, watch the dailies from the one that they're currently making to inspire him. And the dailies, it's just this one scene. Of course, they've got to shoot it over and over again from different angles. But you're watching it, like, what is supposed to inspire him about I this? Know. I mean, why not actually seeing? watch him have him watch an actual an actual movie, movie. <laughs> and you can just feel him like looking down on it the whole time i mean he, yes he's the, just the, looking the, on it's it a little horror. cheesy this guy is probably not a real actor right. <laughs> he's probably an actual wrestler, wrestler or something in the movie yeah. you know but he's still just not seeing anything of value like not even entertainment in this so like why can't something just be for entertainment right why does everything right. have to be like this why does everything have to come from pain and right you know like lipnick tells him like for what uh -huh. the script that he finally writes at the end like we just wanted a wrestling picture we didn't need to something see all this uh suffering or right. whatever like this, this maybe a little for the critics but maybe that's also part of barton's problem i see yeah. is like again with just having this head up his own ass like just why can't something just be for entertainment right. why do you have to look down at entertainment that entertains 
scenes and distracts the common man probably from the struggles that you're trying to to write about that you don't actually know about. Right, right. You know, on screen. So when when Audrey comes over to help him with the script, I think the way she describes it is really funny because usually there's going to be, he needs to protect a love interest or sometimes an idiot man child. And I think the movie is talking about Barton Fink. He is the idiot man child (laughs) of this movie. Um, I, you know, obviously that language is pretty not nice. It's, it's terrible, but, (laughs) but it's like, (laughs) but, but then, but then, you know, the wrestler is an ex convict or a backwards type Charlie. Yeah. So I mean, all of these things. Are yeah, kind with of the there. script when he's talking about yeah a large man in tights, like I kind of was getting that he was talking about Charlie, or he was getting yeah, exactly. at least maybe some inspiration from Charlie for yeah. that stuff. Yeah, and if he just listened to his stories, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he would have it. He would have something better. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. would have had it faster than this. Yeah, and maybe and Audrey would have had to die. Right. Oops. Spoiler. Audrey and <laughs> Audrey and Barton. We obviously they we see that they are about to have a little tryst, right? Um, they're going to bone. And the camera the camera just kind of drifts off, and we can hear them, the sounds of them a little bit, and then it goes mm-hmm. down the sink. Yes. And this is apparently what got... Is that like a... No, I, I was going to say, this was Roger Deakins' first movie with the Coen brothers. He, he shot a lot of movies with them. They always talked about when they wanted something really unique from him. It's like, okay, we're going down the sink drain. Because it came from this shot. You know, we need you to figure out how we're going to do this, you know, essentially. And it's kind of a brilliant moment because also the sound that's going on, you hear this, you hear sort of the echoes of other things in the hotel, but you almost like you hear the sound of Charlie yelling or something, you know, somewhere in the background of that sound track inside the sink drain. He can hear everything that goes on in these walls, right? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, I I always kind of wonder what exactly I'm hearing in that yeah. moment. That's what I kind of just got from it. That it was just more sounds of of the hotel, the other the other people that we never actually see. Yeah, right, right. But then also we are sort of harken back to that line of Charlie's where he says, "I can hear everything that goes on in this hotel," because I'm assuming that he kills her. That Charlie kills oh, yeah. Audrey. Sure. Um, but you have this moment where he wakes up and he sees the mosquito and it lands on her. When he finally kills the mosquito. <laughs> yeah. And it's like this real <laughs> mega close up of this mosquito and he hits it with his hand and she doesn't it's so wake much up. blood though. <laughs> and there's a ton of blood and there's blood all over his hand too. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's like this. From this one little yeah, mosquito. Yeah. It's like this blood, huge bloody mark on his hand. It's almost like a crucifixion wound. <laughs> I mean, the way it looks. I know, I know. Uh, Probably reading too much into it. But I think there is definitely, you know. He literally looks into the Bible at one point. I know, I know. He sees his own script in the Bible. I love that part. (laughs) I love that part where the first two two verses of Genesis are the first lines of his script. (laughs) It's like fade in. Fade in on a fishmonger. And God said, let there be light. Yeah, I love that part. They also, you know, sort of linger on the one from Daniel where it's talking about it being a dream, interpreting the dream. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I find that interesting because maybe we are inside Barton's head and this is sort of a dream kind of 
nightmare world. I don't know. I don't know. Again, Very there's lucky. so many clues like that in this movie. No definitive one that can no. give you like a real... You can't really believe one or the other. It's like, well, there's this, but then there's also this. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> Is well, the Hotel Earl even real? Is he right. even here? I don't know. <laughs> Is this a nightmare he had the night after the play before going to California for real? I don't know. Yeah. But I, I love when Charlie comes to the door and he's like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> it's like, and he's, well, no, even and, he's that- and he's nodding. No, no. <laughs> Even before that, um, his his scream after his scream he sees so that funny, she's yeah. dead, it's so funny. It really is. In this like such dark moment, it's like a I don't know. There's something like the pitch of it is very like yeah. hysterical, but like yeah. it's supposed to be. I don't know. It's very funny the way he does it. But yeah, when and then Charlie and also yeah he de- he definitely killed her. Yeah, he definitely sure. killed her. Then he's a really good actor. He is to he like is. to yeah. go and like vomit after he sees her. That's right. One of the things I forgot about is after he slaps her and the nothing happens, and then he sees sort of the blood start flowing out from under her body. Mm-hmm. That is incredible. I think the way that yeah. whole sequence is revealed is so good. It's very cool. Yeah. There's an interesting thing, too, where he actually goes over and gets Charlie, knocks on his door, and, and he says, he's like, Charlie, can I come in? He says, oh, let's go to your room. You're not allowed to see Charlie's room. Probably because he has... I bet the doctor's head is in there. The, exactly. He's putting a head in a box. Is that the doctor's head? Or, or... Is it Audrey's? Is it Audrey's? Is it his Uncle Charlie's? There are many possibilities. It's not this... It's, it's, maybe there's two... Maybe there's enough room for two heads because it's a very like tall it's a box. tall box. <laughs> maybe there are no heads in it. Maybe there's nothing in the box. Maybe there's nothing in it. I don't know. Yeah. And we'll never know. And I think that is actually really... (laughs) Damn it. Brilliant. I mean, if there's a head in the box, what if the box is empty? What if his head is empty? (laughs) It would have been... Maybe it would have been cool to have it... He opens it and he sees his own head in the box. Ah. There we go. I just wrote the ending for you there, Coens. There you go. Yeah, the Coens. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, I know how uh, Charlie cleans up the body for him. And, you know, he hits her head on the dresser as he's walking out. Doesn't I've never even really him. registered with me before. It's like you kind of get a hint there. Yeah, that was a good little touch where he's like, "That doesn't even phase him." Like, yeah. carrying out the body. <laughs> right. Then you know, after this, immediately he goes to this meeting with Lipnick at his house, where he does. He's doesn't obviously have any ideas. He doesn't know what he's gonna say. He says, "Can I be completely honest with you?" And he says, "If I was completely honest, I wouldn't be within a mile of this pool." <laughs> But that's no reason why you shouldn't be. Uh, so <laughs> it's so funny. It's it's very funny. The hypocrisy of him, too. It's another kind of like biting, you know, comments about Hollywood, too. It really is. And Lou is just so dark in this. Like, the contents of your head are the property of capital pictures. That's that's a pretty dark moment. And then, of course, Lipnick says, how dare you talk about t- talk to the writer that way? And it's all a show. Of course, <laughs> fires him. But, you know, the next time we see Lipnick, who's in the office, Lou is in the office. That yeah, that scene, I wasn't really sure what that yeah. what was really going on there. Just, yeah, just the way he I'm sure it was. It's a it's switching a, back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an act that they have probably done a million times. I, I don't know. To like f- scare him into getting something done, maybe. Yeah. 
And then, you know, we then we have the box, the actual box, you know, Charlie brings in the boxes. It's like it's sad how all of uh, a man's possessions can fit into one little box. I think that's a kind of a weird moment. It's just that instance of, you know, it's the what's in the box moment. You are thinking that from this point of the movie all the way to the end. What is in the box? Oh, what's in the box? What's in the box? And, you know, this is this is all the stuff, you know, where he's like looking in the Bible and the, that we've already talked about. Then he gets in the elevator. He talks to Pete. Have you uh, have you read the Bible, Pete? Holy Bible? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I've heard of it at least. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's it's one of those momentary scenes where that actor steals the moment. And I I love that this movie allows that kind of space. Um this is the scene that you love. They all this is the I, the detectives. The detectives. And this scene is I love this more are, than I ever have before. They are the best. <laughs> Mostly I think just for the way that they put Barton in his place, finally. Yeah. That's what I love the most about it. Like I said, whenever he says that he's a writer, the first thing, it's like, big fucking deal. Should my yeah. partner kiss your ass? <laughs> <laughs> it's so perfect. His name is Carl. Yeah, he's, yeah, all that stuff is great. So he talks and, about like that he writes for the common man. He, he, they're like, oh, wow, geez, thanks. <laughs> and I forgot the <laughs> <line was> exactly. <laughs> just... <laughs> it's, well, the thing is, it, the dialogue goes so fast that mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like it's hard to register at all. Um, and it's so well done. It's fantastic. And talk about Carl Munt, Madman Munt, likes to ventilate people with a shotgun, cut off their heads. Doctor out there and physician heal thyself. Hard to do without a head. Uh, <laughs> Where he says he's a he's an ear, nose, and throat doctor or something. Now, all of which he doesn't missing. have those anymore. <laughs> it's like, oh, he had a little bit of his throat left. Um, <laughs> That's such good stuff. <laughs> that whole scene is so, and, and and even the lobby of the Earl is like smoky, and it, it looks like it's shot through a, a smoke screen. Then is it after that where he's looking in the box, where he's looking at the box? You know, the look on his face when he's staring at that box is so funny to me, where he's just kind of gape jawed looking at it. Um, <laughs> and then he suddenly has this breakthrough when he sits at his typewriter and he starts writing this script yep. and just goes and goes and goes and goes. Well, and then the thing is the, the the last line is the same last line as his play. It's <laughs> we're going to hear from him again. And I don't mean a postcard fade out. And that's the end of it. Just like it's the end of his play. <laughs> I didn't pay attention to that. Nice. <laughs> so, well, cause, cause when he's, they do like a little like typing montage and you can hear like little snippets and voiceover of what he's writing. Again, mm-hmm. I was like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> he's not gotten any better. No. And yet the look on his face, he's very pleased with himself. Of course. Oh yeah. He's like, this is, I'm really onto something that he calls his agent. This is the best thing I've ever done. He's not, he doesn't understand the assignment. First of all, he's not writing the movie that he was assigned mm, yeah. to write. And yeah, he's just got his head so far up his own ass. He doesn't realize <laughs> that all he did was write his play over again with a wrestler in it. That's all he did. It's just a tourist with a typewriter. Yeah, that's right. I like and that then, too. And then that the USO good. dance, you know, oh, where, God, yeah. where, where the soldier, hey, I'm shipping out tomorrow. Can I cut in? Is like, but I am a writer. I... I'm celebrating the creation of something good. So he goes, I'm a writer, you monsters. I create. I am a creator. What is he saying? I'm God. 
He's saying, I'm God, yeah. and you are all just a bunch of insects in my world. And these people are the common man that he claims to love so much. He's he, he's literally talking to people that have or are going to go fight in a war. Exactly. Thinking that he's better than them. <laughs> like, come on, dude. <laughs> and then there's kind of a funny joke about the army and the navy, too, when they start right. fighting. I thought that was good. I thought that was yeah, good. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty funny. But, I mean, it's this idea that the intellectual is so far superior to yeah. anything else. And I think the Coens are actually railing against that a bit, even though they're making a very intellectual movie. In this process, you know, oh, they they're, yeah. they're kind of they're kind of railing against this idea of high art versus low art, which I appreciate. The good film fans recognize the the appeal and the importance of both, you know, well, and that's, the, that's the just the main is, thing. And let's face it, the Coens made both. I mean, oh, ra- yeah, they did. Raising, totally. raising Arizona is just a flat out hilarious comedy that is wild over the top. In another dimension, you know, with Nicolas Cage probably giving my favorite performance of his ever. Uh, (laughs) And then you have Barton Fink, which is just Palme d'Or Con Festival winner, you know, elite kind of movie. You have their remake of The Odyssey. I mean. Right, right. (laughs) But the thing is, (laughs) Brother Where Art Thou, it's a lowbrow telling of The Odyssey. And it's it's fantastic. And, you know, some like The Big Lebowski, you know, about (laughs) which is... A modern film noir with which was popular cinema, you know, let's face it. Film noir has got this reputation of being so highfalutin or whatever. No, this was pop cinema. This was crime movies. That's what those mm-hmm. were. And pulp. Um, pulp. Yeah, stories. exactly. Yeah. Honestly, there's a streak of that in this movie, too, totally. of, of the yeah. noir. I mean, come on. I mean, so I think there's a, a <laughs> lovely comment about what's the difference in, like it's 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 we're making a movie here you know? <laughs> I, I, I like that they're just movies people yeah <laughs> one of my favorite lines too from um from john goodman like after he's been kind of revealed the whole um climactic um scenes when um he's talking to barton because <laughs> he's known as um madman munt madman munt they say i'm a madman but I'm not mad at anyone. It's just, it's so kind of sweet the way he says his lines at the end here. I After we found this. out that he's a murderer. We found out he's a murderer, but okay, this whole sequence is wild. Okay, okay. He's been handcuffed to the bed um, by the detectives. Because think, they think that he's in cahoots with Mutt. Right, yeah. And the way this all plays out at the end, it's just like the hell it's metaphor so cool. taken to the it's ultimate so cool. level, right? Because, yeah. you know, he steps out of the elevator of the smoke and the fire, and then the whole hallway starts on fire. Well, the way that the flames just kind of lick in between the, mm-hmm. you know, the bottom of the doors, oh, <laughs> the, the elevator oh. looks so cool. And it's like, all right, put the case down. He picks up the case. And he shoots, a, he pulls out a shotgun, shoots one of the detectives and look upon me. I'll show you the life of the mind. So great. I mean, it, it just running down the <laughs> yeah. hallway that like a locomotive, you know, at these guys. Again, not really feeling like this place is real. That hallway, the, the 
how long is this hallway? I know. It changes. It changes with every shot. Uh-huh. How, from, from both perspectives. It could either be like he's really, uh, Charlie or Carl or whatever is really close to the detective or he's really far away. Or yeah. like when he's, the when the detective is running from him, he either, mm-hmm. he's got a, like a long way to go. Like how, how big is this place? It, exactly. it doesn't really, it doesn't have a definitive beginning and end. It's kind of a labyrinth. I mean, there's no sense of, of where it goes. I mean, it's almost, you know, I guess you could relate to some like the Overlook Hotel where exactly. it's just endless it's got a life hallways. Of its own. Yeah. Which is also one of those ideas that maybe this place isn't entirely real. You know, and the fact that it's on fire and it's not burning, you know, right. is another element. And um, But you're, I love that scene that you were just talking about, though, because he says, Madman Munt, he says, oh, people can be so cruel. If it's not my build, it's my personality. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you almost you well, feel a little bit before, sorry for him, you know? Right. Also, before, like when he was talking about being an insurance salesman, like going door to door and talking about how rude people can be. And he mentions like uh, talking to a lot of housewives and stuff. I mean, you find out later that he killed all killed of them. them that, yeah. was, that was his thing. But he's, again, just able to kind of just twist it around and make it make you kind of sympathize for him. I don't know. Just it's to, he's weird. just got that charm. He's just got the charm that you can believe whatever he's saying, even if it's completely the opposite. This is one of the things that's great about the Coen brothers is they write for the people they want to cast in the movie. And yeah, oftentimes, totally. if that person turns them down, they won't make the movie. Because frankly, they definitely wrote this for John Goodman. Yeah, right? the, definitely wrote Charlie for John Goodman. Definitely wrote uh, Barton for John Turturro. I think probably even wrote Chet for Steve Buscemi. You know, I think all of these things, I don't know about Michael Lerner. Um, he's perfect. <laughs> so maybe, uh, I, I don't know about Tony Shalhoub either or the others, but if it wasn't written for them, it sure feels like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause they just embody everything so perfect. Totally. But when Barton finally asks him, but Charlie, why me? And he yells at him because you don't listen. <laughs> There you go, Barton. That's been your problem the whole time. And what does he do? It's like, you think you know pain? You think I put you through hell? The way he says that. Uh, It says, look around. You're just a tourist with a typewriter. I live here. And you come into my home and complain that I'm making too much noise. (laughs) That is... (laughs) It's, that's so good it's so good he's satan this he's is his home yeah exactly <laughs> and he wants and bringing the rolling stones a little bit of sympathy, sympathy for the i devil. i genuinely <laughs> think that there's a little bit of a sympathy for the devil idea going on here because why doesn't he kill him why does he let him go because he says i'm says, sorry he says he's sorry yeah. and then he says oh hell that's all right and he's and he sets him he does the free. same thing he literally oh, that's so when he that's pulls so the, the way he does that bars on the bed apart oh i don't know what the hell he was doing at first <laughs> i remember well and and the way it's just it's like that little ball between mm-hmm. the sections of I, and it just falls off and lands on the floor it's like every shot is just so perfect in this movie that oh, it's it's something and well and then it's oh a drop by your folks uh <laughs> good people do you think he killed them and and that's the i don't know of it right because 
They, he says they're yeah. he says they're good people, and he's willing. He seems to be willing to forgive people who are good people. You know, yeah. He, people he doesn't... that aren't rude to him, people mm-hmm. that acknowledge him and maybe even apologize. And if they yeah. were, yeah, if they were good to him, he probably let them go. Right, but then after the fact, he's Hopefully. trying. To, he's trying to call them, and there's no answer. I know. Uh, and so, <laughs> and then, then this weird enigmatic line on that box I left you. I lied. It isn't mine. And that's it. Then he goes back to his room, <laughs> which is on fire. <laughs> um, the same the same kind of shot, too, mm-hmm. of watching him, like, walk by the doorway, like, with the flames behind him is mm-hmm. similar to the shot of Barton watching him carry Audrey's body out of the room, too. Right. Which I kind of liked. Yeah. It's, oh, man. It's... There's, <laughs> For, to me, the little things that I notice and that I like, yeah. <laughs> I know. I mean, to me, again, this is kind of a perfect movie, even though it's so hard to wrap your head around entirely, which is mm-hmm. the point of it. And that's one of the things I like about it. And then this whole Colonel Lipnick thing at the end is, well, it's not official. I had wardrobe whip this up <laughs> for me. Um, but this whole thing is like, I had Lou read it for me. First of all, I, that line is funny because because – Earlier, Geisler, Geisler says, um, <laughs> Lipnick can't read. You got to yeah. tell him. <laughs> so it's, that's right. <laughs> and you think in this scene, maybe that's true. <laughs> pretty funny. Um, it says, you know, this isn't what we wanted. This is not the assignment. It's like, you know, this is the best work I've ever done is what Barton says. But you're under contract. We own everything you write, but we're not going to produce anything you write. But I want you in town and out of my sight. So essentially, he's, I think he's gone from hell to purgatory, is my idea. He's stuck here. Mm -hmm. He's out of the Earl. He's out of the hell of having written this first screenplay. But now he's stuck there. He can't, he can't leave yet. So he goes to the beach. This is another great enigmatic thing. Like another great Coen Brothers what ending. What exactly does it mean? I don't know. I mean, okay, Coen Brothers are absolute masters of endings. I mean, think about Fargo. After all that happens, what happens? She goes home. She gets into bed with her husband, and they're talking about two the more months. Baby's two more months away, and you know we've got a pretty good norm. You know, then of course that great ending of No Country for Old Men where sugar gets away and then there's a scene that's not in the book where Tommy Lee Jones's character gives this speech that is just kind of like about everything we've seen but unrelated to it in any way. <laughs> it's that kind of stuff that they do so well and I think this is one of those sort of classic Coen Brothers endings where he goes down to the beach, he sees the woman walking on the beach and she says it's a beautiful day and he's like what <laughs> he can't hear her so like, i said it's a beautiful day and it's like he didn't even notice that it was a beautiful day and she asks him what's in the box which i love that <laughs> 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 and he says i don't know and she says well isn't it yours isn't it yours yeah. and she says i don't know so maybe it is his head in the box you know? Ooh, ooh, yeah. And all of this has just been... In his own head. In his own head. And says, you're very beautiful. Are you in pictures? And she <laughs> says, don't be silly. And then she strikes the pose of the picture that was in his room. In the picture. Yeah. So, yes, she is in uh, pictures. She is in yeah. pictures. <laughs> yeah, and I love that. Oh, 
And they have such good luck with birds. That bird just that bird that dive bombs dive bombs right there in the last shot. I mean, that is like you you can't (laughs) orchestrate that. It's amazing. So I mean, that That ending. I mean, it's like the hope of freedom. It's the sense that maybe eventually he'll embrace being free. I don't know. Maybe that he's finally seeing things that he wasn't seeing before. I don't know. Like, because what's interesting, too, is like he's coming from New York, right? Yeah. So he's coming from New York to Hollywood. And yet we never see the Hollywood like Mm-mm. you would expect to see. No, we only see a few locations. We only see, you know, we see Lipnick's house. We see, oh, even in New York, you only see the indoors you only see the mm. the stage and the theater you only see the indoors of his office of that diner yeah um there's just that one scene yeah outside when they're outside by the pool mm-hmm. yeah and but, then the picnic know. which is out somewhere in the who knows where but yeah nothing that specific screams like hollywood yeah really. you know what i mean mm-hmm. and like the hotel is very um i i kind of love like old hotels like that though even though it's yeah. like so creepy as hell yeah <laughs> it's creepy as hell but like yeah. the, the little art art deco thing going on at mm-hmm. the, the time period i just i love that design so much yeah yeah like it's like he's finally um getting maybe it's like he's finally getting out of his own head and uh-huh. see, finally seeing what's around him that's what the ending is maybe actually now if one of these people showed up he would actually listen to their stories possibly yeah. maybe I yeah, think I like this that. movie is, is <laughs> this movie has so many ways of looking at it. And that's one of the things I like about it so much. You know, that's why I think I gravitate toward like Nightmare on Elm Street and things like that. Because there's a, <laughs> there isn't even a sense of this being an unreality. Oh, yeah. I was a little nervous when you wanted to talk about Barton Fink. Because like I said, I only seen it one, once before a few years ago. And I liked it. But it was another one of those that... I didn't fully get. I wasn't sure. I was like, oh, I don't, I don't either. know if I'm going to have. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one I kind of watched and I was like, it's one of those movies that kind of makes you feel dumb sometimes <laughs> after you watch it. If you don't, yeah. if you can't fully interpret it. But as this happened, you know, several times, like actually knowing that we're going to have to talk about it and being able to discuss it, you know, for the show and yeah. looking at it that way. Like, it, I, yeah, I love this one now. Yeah. You know, and this is the kind of movie I think of when I think of a Coen brothers movie, even though they've made all sorts of different kinds of things, mm-hmm. the ones that feel the most Coen brothers to me, I guess <laughs> are, you know, the sort of the male protagonist movie that is sort of an examination, interior examination kind of movie. Um, so there's this one, there's The Man Who Wasn't There, Inside Lewin Davis, and A Serious Man. Those I are the seen that one. And even though they're just sort of these enigmatic movies, and it's not, it doesn't even scope their, I mean, it, they made them sort of throughout their filmography here. But there's sort of like a certain lane that they took every now and then. They returned to this kind of movie. And that's sort of that bizarre inscrutability of them. 
<laughs> that yeah. is so present in those. But then again, I mean, you have their crime movies like Fargo and No Country for Old Men, which, you know, are sort of defining in their way, too. And then you have their zany comedy crazy movies like Hudsucker. Those have got to be my favorite. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and because I, I, you could make an argument that those are the most Coen Brothers of Coen Brothers movies, too, you know? I think of like, yeah, I think of O Brother and I think of Hudsucker and even Raising um, Arizona. And- Raising Arizona. Um, Hail Caesar, maybe. I think. Hail Caesar. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't think of what it was called. I yeah. loved that one, even though that's like doesn't seem to be like everybody's like favorites. I think those well, are just the ones I gra- I'm gravitating more towards now. Like, well, I think the, of their first the fun ones. Yeah, I think of their first three or four movies, and it was just sort of like these are the kinds of movies they kept doing. You know, Blood Simple. You know, sort of mm-hmm. has similar DNA to some like Fargo or No Country for Old Men, and then and then um, Raising Arizona. You know, is sort of like the ones we just talked about, and then. Barton, uh, Miller's Crossing. Um, Miller's Crossing. It's sort of, there's a there's a little bit of Big Lebowski in, in a movie like that in a weird way. Um, and then, of course, uh, Barton Fink, you know, with the movies that we just mentioned. But all of them are very Coen brothers, but it, it's just these different lanes they like to take and do yeah. so well. Even as different as a lot of their stuff can be, it's there's some of those filmmakers where yeah no matter what lane that they take for this story or that story their voice is still always there you can always tell when it's a coen brothers movie <laughs> oh yeah especially in the dialogue i would say it's yeah. probably the, the biggest thing that gives them away <laughs> but it's yeah 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 do you know <laughs> definitely all right those uh that was a, that's a great pairing those two it together. really is yeah okay so we're good brian we are amazing <laughs> so we're Kind of a, uh, okay, little insight here. Um, it's been a crazy couple months uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, for me, it's kind of been one thing after another, uh, including uh, a bout of my back going out and COVID through my whole family and all kinds of things that have been a challenge. Uh, so we haven't been able to record as much and also haven't necessarily been able to watch as much outside of our work as other times. So we decided we're going to go ahead and forego recommendations. I'm sure people are very, very sad. About I know. I mean, I don't know how many recommendations people <laughs> really know. listen to. It's fun to do them when we can, but I don't think, I mean, I wouldn't even know what to pair these with. They're so other. unique in their ways. <laughs> yeah, just to pair them with each other, exactly. <laughs> but we do have a plan for our next episode. Oh my god, I am so friggin' stoked about this. I know. I mean, not really. It's another movie that I don't feel smart enough to talk about, but we're gonna try. Oh uh, no, <laughs> I don't either. But hey, um, so I don't know. What do we call this? Cheaters. Uh, sexy, <laughs> sexy cheaters. Sexy cheater movies. Sexy cheater movies. Uh, I don't know what order we're going to talk about these though i i kind of <laughs> i think it would be end great to end with my movie because the last line is just too perfect um the great way to end an episode <laughs> i think but anyway we'll we'll see what happens sure. <laughs> we'll see what happens um so go ahead and what what are, what are you bringing to the table next week i'm bringing one of my favorite sexy movies ever from 2002 um adrian lynn's unfaithful yeah, which I've only seen once. Uh, oh my god! I'm I watched it. Movie. I watched it with my wife. I think I watched it in pretty close proximity to the movie with her, to the movie that I'm bringing, which is when you said sexy movie. This is I don't know why this was the one that came to my head because it's, it's not sexy, but it has a lot of nudity in it. 
And it's got a lot of sex in it. Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Again, kind of an inscrutable, what the hell, um, is this real or a dream kind of movie? Uh, So that, I didn't think about that when I picked it, but... Hey, we'll do fun. You're all about you're all about the dream. I guess reality I am. World well, I've been, that's like I've, your new thing. I've been sort of <laughs> stuck in that world for the past few months, so I'm I'm ready to get that's out of I'm it. Saying. To be honest, but uh, <laughs> let's let's have some. I'm I'm, I'm ready for some uh, for some fun stuff soon here too. This one will be fun. I think. I think so too. Um, so anyway, that is that, and uh, you can find us online in various places uh you can find me at brian d kuiper on twitter and you can find me at michelle in Agen. and you can find the show at movie life pod as always uh follow us along talk to us about what you think about the episodes or the movies we love to hear from people and if you could take a minute to give us a rate and a review on apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening yes please and thank you all right brian what are we gonna do next time we'll see you next time Bye. Bye.